it's like like you live like say you say i'm living in like say i'm from german right and i learned how to be revolutionary in new york you know what i mean it's like okay well what about german that's kind of how it works okay folks we're going to try to go ahead and get started hey on could you move that bottle a water bottle no no right there yeah there you go uh morning everybody starting a little bit late but um a lot of people are out of town uh some people are in korea some people are in other places um Urba is i think by this time flying to india if she hasn't already arrived there she's in illinois she'll be going to india too okay and um so we have a lot on our plate this morning. Um, uh, first of all, we want to talk about the um, well, what what we could call the systemic crisis of capitalism, what that means, uh, and um, how we in the free school can begin to think about this crisis and begin to talk about a kind of political practice that unites the people uh, and what possibly we can uh, expect from the people in terms of rebellion and resistance. First of all, and then we want to go and talk about some of the, uh, as we reevaluate and evaluate the free school uh, looking to 2022. Uh, so we'll do that. That'll be, I think that'll be very, very interesting. Uh, so let me just start by um, telling a couple of stories uh, that kind of uh, anchor this. You know, uh, I've, I've talked a lot about taking um, Purba and Chumbarta over to uh, Kensington and how they were literally shocked at what they saw and speechless. And so I thought a lot about it, you know, uh, their response, their reaction. And what I concluded recently is that while they said, look, we're from a poor country, India has poverty all over the place, uh, Chumbarta is from uh, Calcutta, and you know that's you know kind of a, a lot of poverty in that city, but they'd never seen anything like this. So I'm saying, well, what did they see? And then it occurs to me, what they saw was a social catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Not just poverty, not just people shooting drugs outside and living outside. You know, not only the fact that the city has done nothing to address the problem, which means that whole area is ungovernable, mm. but that's not unusual. There are other parts of Philadelphia, not far from here, up the street. Mm. It's literally ungovernable. There's very little presence of a city government, but what they saw and what you can see in various parts of Philadelphia is what we have to call a social catastrophe. A parts of Philadelphia 
And this is not just Philadelphia. If you went to San Francisco, if you went to LA, if you went to Chicago, all over this country. Big swaths of urban America are sites of societal collapse and social catastrophe. Now I've been talking to um, Michelle and she's, you know, other people in the Lotus Collective and they're, they're talking about doing, moving the, the um, center of their discussions to sociology. And then I, you know, cause then I talked to her this week and you know, we were saying, well, uh, sociology is pretty much an academic discipline. You know, there is no real, so you don't hear of any, let me put it, you don't hear of any sociology that is not connected to quote, researchers and academics which means then that it's not the sociology that we would do or that we would need or that the people would need that could explain systemic collapse. And so I said, look, Michelle, why don't we try to think about the development of a social science or a sociology of catastrophe? Not data collection, not uh, this um, uh, hands-off uh, sociologist sitting in a room or what they call drive-by sociology, uh, which I guess we might be doing a little bit of it when we go up to uh, Kensington, we might be drive-by sociologists, but, but we wanna do a little bit more than that. So that's one thing that, uh, Purba and Chabarta witnessed a social catastrophe. The other thing is that I was talking to my daughter, who is a mother, a teacher, a wife, and she and her family live on the street uh, that my father lived on, that at one time was, you know, a really nice street, a nice neighborhood, and it still is. But one part of the street, and it's a long street, long block, one part of the street is, um, uh, you know, really stable, working people and so on. And then down the block, something, the very opposite is going on. And uh, everyone knows there's a drug house, a crack house, and a lot of guns, and a lot of young men who are capable of all kinds of violence, including senseless murders. Well, my daughter is raising uh, two daughters, and you know, really great. She and her husband a really great job, mm -hmm. and it's almost like you have to build a iron curtain protecting them from, and I put quotes around this, a culture that is toxic and negative and violent. Now, of course, if you are part of Black Lives Matter and are white, you're gonna be talking about defund the police. But if you live in such neighborhoods as the one that I'm talking about, you want the police to do their job. Right. You see what I'm saying? 
as a part of protecting communities of working people. So we were talking on the phone and she said, someone just got shot across the street, you know? And, but that is not unusual. Throughout black Philadelphia, people are terrorized and in a state of fear. I know even in my own neighborhood, which is part of it is highly gentrified and the gentrification goes for, you know, on rapidly. Well, when I grew up, uh, it was a drug neighborhood. Heron was sold, there were Heron addicts, you know, but I never saw anything similar to Kensington. I never saw anybody shooting dope in the open. I hardly ever saw a person nodding out. I heard, well, so-and-so was on dope and so-and-so got his girlfriend strung out. You know, you would hear things like that. I knew that Hellron was being sold up in Richard Allen projects, but it was nothing like what we see today and nothing like the violence. Although I had friends growing up who had been shot and this was mainly about, you know, what we call corners, you know, different little gangs fighting each other and, you know, so on and so forth, but nothing on this scale. How do you explain this violence? Well, there are ways to explain it, you know? And I guess if I go for, further in this, this discussion, I, the best explanation that I can offer is that a set of social economic policies were put in place in the 1970s, which not only eventuated in deindustrialization, in other words, factories moving out of cities, but that combined with the financialization of the economy, by which I mean that government set in place policies that privileged banks and other large financial institutions. In other words, what we call finance capital that led to the um, rapid um, and brutal of not only deindustrialization, because see finance capital is not interested in production. It's interested in raw profit. So it is able to move wherever in the world it wishes to, where, where things are more profitable. And so, you know, I could take you out over Kensington. I could take you in the neighborhood where I live, where, you know, my mother and, and ladies that would meet at our house in the morning and drink coffee and some would smoke their cigarettes and then they would walk to work in a factory right down the street uh, and it was owned by two Italians and it was called uh, Scafaria Brothers. And a lot of uh, Italian immigrants worked there, it was garment production. And, and this, frankly, it was a 
revolution in workforce participation for black women who were usually cleaning houses of rich people like my grandmother, she would be picked up by, um, by white, a white family or white woman and taken to the suburbs where they would work all day cleaning the house and all. But here now you had women working in manufacturing and in unions. But in the factory, all the machine operators, the sewing machine operators were women, Italian and black women, and men were the pressers. Of course, that was a higher paid job. And um, around holidays, they would come to my house where I live now, and Italian and black workers, they would, you know, uh, celebrate, you know, after work, Christmas, and then they would all go to South Philly or wherever they lived to, so on and so forth. But that all was destroyed with deindustrialization. And that was across the board. And so when you go to Kensington, where you had light manufacturing, warehouse, transportation, and jobs like that, that is all wiped out. And those uh, primarily white workers who remained in Kensington uh, were, com uh, were completely wiped out. You know what I'm saying? Were completely wiped out. And so Kensington of the day, of today, what you would see is not what existed 50 years ago. You know? Is not what existed 50 years ago. And the small houses, I, I tell everybody, Philadelphia was a place where people owned homes. You know, when you got your first job or married and so on, the first thing you want to do was buy a house. And so you had these little two-story houses on small streets where families lived. They would go to work, they would raise their children, and sometimes they would hope of moving to a bigger house. But home ownership was a sign of working class stability. You see what I'm saying? And it was what my parents just happened they can get a small house, they got a big house. And it so happened that they rented rooms out to other working people. And not just you know for a week, people would rent a room for years. But I'll, I'll talk about that later. All of that has been destroyed totally destroyed, ruthlessly destroyed. In the case of black folk, you combine the deindustrialization with the carceral state, with the mass incarceration, using as a pretext, crack, not heroin, not cocaine, not meth, not ecstasy, not any of those drugs, but crack, which was used by black people a lot at that time. It was kind of, I think, more of a black drug. Now it's a white drug. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you my reaction to that in a minute. But it was kind of a, a badge of degradation. Y'all do crack. Y'all strung out on crack, all that kind of, you know, anything, you know, just like the Moynihan report. Oh, you all don't have two 
parent families. So that shows that you are culturally degraded and so on. Oh, you do crack. That shows that you are nothing but inferior. You see what I'm saying? You get, you get the how they use these narratives. And thus they use that to justify the 1994 crime bill, which led to this vast carceral state and the incarceration of at least one fourth, if not more, of young black men. Um, and, but not just that, but breaking up the possibility of income and wealth coming into the black community. It leaves young women without partners, you know, and this is huge. And thus, by destroying the family, I mean, whatever, and you know, ain't no perfect families. We all know that. Ain't nobody been in no perfect family, a perfect marriage. So let's just stop the madness. That's, you know, that's Disneyland. But whatever the arrangement is, you don't have a mother that has to work two and three jobs and leaving the children to raise themselves. You don't leave a community without men. And I'm not just men, because I'm, I'm in favor. I, I think women raise some of the best men. I say that all the time, be it Mao Zedong or whoever. You know? But the point of the, a community absent men and absent men working, what is image? What is the idea? And then of course, a whole musical genre that celebrates and romanticizes the killer, the gangster, and the parasite, you know, on the community. And after two generations, one can see the outcome of deindustrialization, mass incarceration, and the imposition upon a whole community of a value system and an imagery where the only thing, the thing that counts the most is money and wealth and uh, ostentatious wealth, that women can be little more than uh, sex objects. And I won't even go into all the details of implants in the behind and in the chest. I mean, it just, yeah, you understand, I mean, like, what does it mean when Cardi B is an icon and not a Nina Simone? And nobody, nobody is a puritanical and nobody desire is human. You understand what I'm saying? But when it is exaggerated and becomes the single thing, it distorts a community. And a community, what we see among black folks for instance, or part of like a community that now has to struggle to reclaim the values that it stood upon in the struggle ahead. And this is what, you know, this is part of what the free school is doing. Mm -hmm. To rediscover, preserve, and advance those values and hopefully somebody is listening, hopefully. I, I'm of the opinion that eventually somebody gonna have to listen after you done tried everything else. 
now you're gonna to have to come home. Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so the crisis is, as King said, the cri a crisis of values. Uh, I was at a janazah last Monday. A janazah is a Muslim funeral. One of our great community activists, a brother that I knew in the past, his name was Herm. I knew him, I knew his mom. Um, and then uh, he, he uh, made a shahada, he became a Muslim and his name became Sultan Ahmad. Great guy, great sense of humor, just beautiful in every way. And he passed. So I went to the janazah, which was held at a temple. And, you know, about half, if not more, of all of, of Black Philadelphia are Muslims of one type or another. You know, half of Philadelphia, half of Black Philadelphia. It's estimated that 450,000 Philadelphians are Muslim. That's a huge population. Um, most of the African Americans who are Muslim are um, uh, Sunni Muslim. Only a small part are Nation of Islam Muslims. But the irony of the whole thing is that no movement within Islam in the United States has done more for the black community, especially for the poor, than the Nation of Islam has. Uh, because they were not trying to create a, as he said, quote, religion, but to create a movement to uplift the downtrodden. And that makes all the difference in the world. So I say that to say that Islam has not been the savior of our community that many had expected it to be. But at this janazah, um, I won't give you my reaction because I have a little bit, I'm not impressed with a lot of what is called Islam in Philadelphia. I'm really unimpressed, frankly. Um, but Islam, like Christianity in the city, suffers from the same problem, a lack of leadership, a lack of principled leadership. And the Black community is in a crisis of leadership. You ask anybody, you ask my daughter, you ask the lady down the street, you ask whoever, even in here, you can ask anybody around here. And one thing people look at, we don't have no leaders. You know, we don't have no leaders. Um, they would even go so far as to say most of them are corrupt. Most of them are out for themselves and they're right. Now, third story, I guess the third or fourth story. This is a friend of mine, a brilliant, brilliant woman who was uh, uh, an official in 1199C, she worked closely with Henry Nicholas. Um, and she's also a, I guess I would call her this, a machine, a democratic machine politician. In other words, she's one of those people with those skills. I'm not talking about these uh, pollsters and 
people that come out of the uh, what do you call the the uh, nonprofit industrial uh, whatever who go you know from city to city and they go into a community and uh, mainly college educated, mainly white but black also, and go in and they're going to tell people how to vote and mobilize you know all that that manipulation. But she is an on the ground old style democratic machine politician. She does it well. She's one of those people who can tell you on election day, like let's say you, uh, Anna, you're running for judge of common pleas court. This is hypothetical. <laughs> and you come to her and you say, Sandra, I want, you know, um, you know, of course y'all going you know, exchange money will exchange hands. <laughs> <laughs> but but you say, look, in 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 this uh, district, I need a thousand votes. Can you deliver them? Sandra can deliver them. That's what you know. That's what she does. You know. In other words, the people know her. She knows the people. She knows each household. Now, of course. This is in Cobbs Creek. Cobbs Creek is a mixed uh, middle-class professionals and stable working-class community. That's Cobbs Creek, very different than here. You see what I'm saying? People have homes. They've been paying off those homes. They maybe paid them off. They sent kids to college. Uh, they as, as the saying goes, did all the right things. When it comes to election day, they do all the right things, which means straight Democrat. You see what I'm saying? When Barack Obama runs, uh, the first one in line will be black women. We got to get the brother in, you know. The brothers are a little more skeptical. They come a little late, is he really a brother? You know, that's the way black men will, you know, it, it's a little bit of a different evaluation, but nonetheless, the whole community is going to vote straight Democrat. If you got a, if you got Kenny, a white man as the mayor, it's because the black vote put him in there. If you got uh, the DA, Krasner, it's because the black vote put him in there, believe me. You know, you don't win at this point any citywide election without the black vote and without people to mobilize that vote, like my friend Sandra, she is brilliant as an organizer and as a thinker. So at this Janaza, you know, we're all standing out on the corner, you know, afterwards, different brothers and sisters, uh, you know, and so just talking. Oh, yeah, you know, yada, 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 this, that, and the other. So a car go by, has somebody say, hey, Tony. You know, so son, come on, man, come on with us. We're going down in. So we, I went with them and uh, another brother, and we went and had dinner and we began to talk. And I said, Sandra, I read your brilliant um, post on Facebook when you talked about the responses and attitudes of black voters in the districts where you're active. 
better than anything you can read in the New York Times and all of that, you know, uh, nickel and dime espionage that they carry on, you know. She talked about the responses of these Black voters. Again, professionals, stable working class, homeowners, you see what I'm saying? Many college educated. You would think we got Biden, we're all happy. You see what I'm saying? Build back better. You know what I'm saying? That we should all be happy. What she described is complete disenchantment and alienation from the political establishment. And these people expressed this openly and in, uh, how would you say, the most direct terms. I don't like them. They don't do anything. They're not for us. I don't know how long I can continue to vote for them. Right? Now, then she told me another story. And these are stories you can only get from people who are on the ground. She said, um, remember in, I think 2020, maybe 2021, when uh, somebody was killed and the people around 52nd Street, maybe it was Walter Wallace, or maybe it was um, the 2020 uh, summer, could have been one of the two where 52nd Street was trashed. Mm -hmm. And she said there was this 80-year-old woman, 80-some-year-old woman, who was um, retired, maybe a retired teacher. And Sandra said she, somehow these, they, got, they were talking in the midst of all of this rioting, as it were. And this woman said, let it burn down. Let it burn down. Because they were burning down a CVS. Sandra said, but Mrs. So-and-so, isn't that where you get your medication? She said, yes, it is, but I don't care. Let it burn down. We've been wanting this to happen since they killed Emmett Till. That was 1955. We have wanted this to happen since they killed Emmett Till. You know what I'm saying? This woman retired in her 80s, who you would think, probably a, a good church member, would be least predisposed to that kind of behavior. I don't care. Now, I tell this story. Kensington, violence and murder in the Black community, and then a complete disenchantment with the political system. So the question is, how long can people who have given everything to one party and gotten very little in return, how long will they remain loyal to that party? And I said to Sandra, and, and we have, we're different, you know, we're different because she has 
worked through the unions, hell of a trade. In fact, she told me, she said, Tony, when they fired you up at Temple, Henry was ready to call a general strike of the oh, workers hey. at Temple. Wow. I said, damn, man, I didn't know that. That would have been a beautiful thing to see. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's, I mean, I just say that to say, that's mm -hmm. the way we roll. That's the way we feel about each other. Mm -hmm. But she operates in the Democratic Party and in the unions. Mm -hmm. I'm not with the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. I abandoned them years ago. But then I ain't down on nobody that is because, you know, we all are part of a, a single garment of destiny, <laughs> as it were. And so what they do is in the interest of progress, even though that's not the tactic I would use. But I said, Sandra, I said, it's over. It's over. The system, the political system is collapsing. She didn't dispute it. I said, Sandra, we don't have leaders anymore. We have kleptocrats. Mm -hmm. I said, Sandra, do you know what a kleptocrat is? She said, no, I don't know what that word is. I said, well, it's from the Greek klept, which means a thief. Mm -hmm. I said, we have the rule of thieves. The state has been, government has been whittled out. Government serves the richest part of the population. And those that go into government go there not to do anything for people, but to enrich themselves and their associates. I said, and I, I, I my finally said, we, we were talking a while, wonderful, just because we hadn't been, I, I didn't even have a phone number, so we hadn't talked in a long time. And we tight, mm. and we got tight. Now we got tight because back in the days, she, you know, when I was, when Henry Winston was coming to Philly, she, she knew Winston. She said, I met him when I was living in Virginia. And so I'm, you know, already I, you know, I'm a love you because you love Winston, you know, but so we've been like that for all this time. And um, I said, you know, ask yourself, why doesn't the city council raise hell about these murders? or about gentrification, you know? Yeah, okay, you, you can easily say Black Lives Matter and don't really mean it. And we know that. Ain't no, all them people talking about Black, ain't nobody meant that a bit. Mm -hmm. And most Black people knew it. Mm -hmm. You really didn't, because look, Black Lives Matter in 2020 leading up to the election, but ain't no Black Lives Matter no more. So it, we don't matter no more, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, look, I mean, there's such a thing as cognitive dissonance and all that shit, but this ain't even cognitive dissonance. I see you for what you are. Mm -hmm. You want to use me for your political objectives, but there is no organic or substantive, really moral commitment to my suffering, to my well-being. Mm -hmm. Dang, dang. And frankly, to be honest with you, this is why I, I have to, most black people will not mess with the white left. Mm -hmm. There was a certain dissonance, certain separation from Bernie Sanders. Yeah, you're saying all the right things, but I can't believe you. You know, 
you all have come among us before defund the police. Now, <laughs> you talking about a bad idea? I mean, you look back on it like, oh, this is so radical, defund the police. Okay, so then what we gonna do, take up arms? <laughs> but anyway, a collapsing system, a crisis of legitimacy. Look, I, I tell these stories to get to one point, to get to several points. Is it just the political system on the cusp of collapse, or is it a deeper systemic crisis? deeper systemic crisis. And can we explain any of this without referencing as fundamental the systemic crisis? Now, what do we mean by the systemic crisis? What is the system? Well, here we have to go back to Lenin and, and Rudolf Dufferty, both of whom First Hilferding, the German social democrat, and of course Lenin, the Bolshevik communist. Hilferding said that the system had, had moved from a system of production to a system dominated by finance. Whereas in the late 19th, middle 19th, or for most of the period of capitalist development, was manufacturing and production, productive capital that dominated. Then something happened, certainly by the end in, in American history, by the end of reconstruction, where finance capital, bank capital becomes dominant over production. So, and with the joint stock company, you didn't have to own 100% of the, the shares to own the corporation. You could own 5% and direct the corporation. So you get, uh, powerful banks and financial institutions would own many corporations or control many corporations. This, of course, produces a new system. Lenin said that this, the uh, development of finance capital, what he called imperialism, was the onset of the general crisis of capitalism. I think this concept of the general crisis is very, very important uh, because his argument was that the general crisis would now be the state of existence or the state of being of capitalism, that capitalism would forever exist in a state of general crisis. Now, what all of that means is not so easy to, to, to explain, because obviously uh, the system has not just gone completely down. In fact, in many ways, there's been an upward trajectory, if you know what I'm saying. After World War II, United States wealth and income and technological development and so on uh, increases. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the United States becomes the wealthiest nation ever in history. The working class generally benefits from this so much so that people didn't even talk of it as a working class anymore, but as a middle class. This 
wide middle income, that in fact, the, um, the system became increasingly uh, determined by consumers. In fact, 70% of the US economy is uh, driven by consumption, buying, you know, a lot of it on credit cards these days, but nonetheless. So a general crisis, what do we mean? And it's not altogether clear, except in times of acute crisis. For example, um, if you say that the first stage of the general crisis of capitalism was roughly, let us say, 1880 to 1970, 17, okay? Well, you know what 1917 was, you know what 1914 to 1918 was. Mm -hmm. World War I, the Russian Revolution, and a series of economic, what we would call depression, some days you would call it recessions today. You saw an instability of the system, but then you saw a system that could only resolve certain of its internal contradictions by going to war, okay? And then ultimately by the breakup or revolutionary breakup of a part of the world system with the Russian revolution, okay? The first stage of the general crisis. Then, so this is very acute. This is existential. This is life and death. So it's very apparent. The this is a general crisis. The system is in crisis. Can the system recover? Well, it didn't. And by 1929, a stock market crash, and then the Great Depression, and then World War II. Many people would say that is the second stage of the general crisis, okay? Uh, and in the second stage, it kind of ends or eventuates not just with uh, World War II, and the end of World War II and the Great Depression, but the Indian independence movement, the breakup of the British colonial empire and the Chinese revolution. Again, the resolution of the general crisis is in revolutions. You see what I'm saying? Socialist revolutions, independence movements. Okay, it's all falling into place. It looks good, the general crisis, right? But is it really? Because then coming out of World War II, you have this uh, nation, the United States, untouched by either of the two major wars, uh, and um, are now able to uh, reconstitute the Western system, uh, uh, the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe, setting up a wall separating Western capitalism from the, uh, the socialist bloc to the east in Europe. Uh, the, um, uh, so Europe reconstitutes itself. It will even be able, and this is why you cannot never underestimate what human beings might be able to do. Even in the depths of crisis, they found a way out. Even without direct colonialism, they found a way to maintain the colonies 
as economically subordinate to what were called the metropolitan countries. So England doesn't have its colonial empire, but it, through the dollar and gold and trade and other arrangements, maintained a dominant position over the former colonies, okay? But you had to have the United States and you had to have this vast military and this nuclear threat and all of that. And of course, wherever there had been revolutions in this period, it had always been in countries of what Lenin called the weak links. No major capitalist country had ever experienced revolution. It was always on what some in the West, Western fears called uh, the periphery. China and Russia, India, the colonies in Africa. But the West seemingly grows stronger. The revolutionary countries are starting way behind. Russia's devastated in World War II. China had experienced a hundred years of humiliation, et cetera, you know the whole story. So they're starting far behind. And then the pressure of the West. But then, even in spite of what seemed to be a general economic upward trajectory of the Western country, and really moving much more quickly in certain ways than the Soviet Union or China. Although, from a standpoint of equality, of lifting everybody at once, China and the Soviet Union far outpace the United States. And they do provide a model for developing countries, but they do not have the propaganda mechanisms to sell their system as effectively as the West sells its system. Yeah. This was huge, you know, and com they were effective in associating communism and socialism with, here we go, totalitarianism, <laughs> which I never knew why that was such a bad word. If total, you mean total? <laughs> the total, <laughs> which means all of us. You know? <laughs> they gave it a bad name. So anytime you hear the word totality, oh, you're a totalitarian. <laughs> but so we, um, so they were winning the propaganda ideological war. You understand? They won that one. And at the end, at the end, we're still behind. So the general crisis. So, all right. So we've gone through two stages of the general crisis. So clearly recognizable, clearly recognizable, you know. But then the West, from 1945 to 19, let's say 75 is in an upward trajectory. But then in the 70s, the system, the Western or capitalist system begins to show deep contradictions. And they have to shift to prevent 
a systemic collapse. One of the things they had to do is that where the dollar, which was the reserve currency, is now uh, no longer connected to gold. That was 1971. So, you know, reserve currency, meaning that if Nigeria trades with China, they will not trade in the Nigerian currency or in the Chinese currency, they will trade between them in dollars. Mm -hmm. So every central bank has to have dollars. The dollar is pre preeminent, and that means that it gives the United States freedom to do things that other nations and other economies could not do. In other words, print as much money as you want to, borrow as much money as you want to, because people are going to need to buy dollars uh, because they have to trade in dollars, and therefore the, the price of the dollar, the value of the dollar would remain stable. We won't go into all that detail. That's a whole lot of theory of money that I don't fully understand. But nonetheless, under Nixon in 1971, the US went off of the gold standard, which meant that the dollar could float any which way that it wanted to. And it left most of its Western allies, central banks, in a kind of a, a bad situation. I won't go into all of that. But, and then on the heels of this, the OPEC nations, the Arab oil producing nations mainly, said that they wanted a fairer price for their oil, which then drove the price of oil up very, very high. And this is another crisis. What would this mean? Would the system collapse if it could not get cheap energy? Somehow it surmounted that. It was able to overcome that crisis. So the question is, are we in a general crisis? Well, to make a long story short, we were probably in a stage of the crisis, but a less toxic, less lethal, less existential threatening stage of the general crisis. But then, and this may have been the onset of the fifth stage of the general crisis, 2008. The financial collapse and what they call the Great Recession. This was systemic. It was existential. The, the financial system of the United States and other Western nations froze up. Banks and financial institutions were unwilling to loan money to one another. Um, Goldman Sachs didn't trust J.P. Morgan. Merrill Lynch, one of the oldest and most powerful Wall Street financial institutions, totally collapsed and went out of existence. That was very frightening. The stock markets froze up. It led 
to a situation, at least as we experienced it in the United States, of high unemployment for a couple of years and people losing their house, houses and other things. Well, by this time, we had, this is 2008, so at least for 30 years, the policy guiding the government of the United States and, and its economic policies was what was known as neoliberal globalization, or sometimes they call it supply side economics, which meant don't tax the corporations because if you tax them, they will go overseas and they will not invest in jobs in the country. Well, they'd already gone overseas. And what it meant is that the entire financial burden of the government was falling increasingly upon working and middle-class people. Wages had flatlined, had been the same for about 40 years. So there was not only what they would call a crisis at the supply level, that in other words, the level of finances, but there was a crisis at the level of demand. People could not buy unless they went further into debt. You see what I'm saying? So this is uh, Bush, the later part of Bush and then Obama, his presidency, they rushed to save the banks. And with the quickness, no debate, no argument, no Republican, no Democrat, a trillion dollars, boom, you know, is discovered, put out there to save the big banks. And then they went into a whole lot of other shit called quantitative easing, other kind of monetary, don't worry about the debt, or oh, we could sell bonds to China and don't, you know, and, 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 and least of all, don't tell the people what is going on, you see. But this is what Marx called, events like this is what Marx called a momenti mori, a reminder of death. The system cracks. Now don't forget, for 40 years, it seemed to be working. It seemed to be holding together. There were recessions, but nothing was existential. Suddenly in 2008, it's existential. We could lose it all. But then the banks were saved, but people were not. And so you could talk all the, you know, you want to talk, but, you know, and, and tell, you know, all the government statistics, unemployment is down. And uh, in, in March, we created uh, 500,000 jobs and, oh, everybody's so happy until you go to Butler, Pennsylvania and everybody's shooting dope and smoking crack and trying to get some fentanyl, you know? And then you realize this is one of the deindustrialized cities, all white and all poor. The only significant public works uh, project in the city for decades was in the center of the city where they built a monument to all of the citizens who had died 
from suicide and opioid overdoses. You know, that's the best they could do. This was a highly industrial city. Go to Gary, Indiana, go to Kensington, go to the south side of Chicago. You know, I mean, wherever you went, you saw the human toll of these policies. But yet, the politicians were acting like everything was everything. Mm -hmm. You know, like that, that rhythm and blues song, hold on, I'm coming. Oh. You know, we gonna, we all gonna make it soon. But we never made it. Mm -hmm. So 2016, the revenge of working people was the election of Trump. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And to the credit of the free school, we didn't see it as no disaster. We saw it for what it was, the revenge of the unemployed, the addicted, the people who had lost their homes. You don't come like he did from nowhere and be, become the president and beat out all the established Republicans, the Bushes, and all the other you know, parasites. Yeah. And he did it. But then he had certain positive things. I'm against NAFTA. I'm against the Trans-Pacific Park. I'm against the industrialization. I'm against all of these wars of regimes. I heard him say it out of my own ears. I was in at the uh, Republican convention, not as a delegate. I had press credentials. You got to find a way to maneuver. Yeah, navigated. But, so, <laughs> I was there and I heard it. I was sitting there. I said, oh, that's listen. In 2016, for a major national politician to say no more wars of regime change. Couldn't, I mean, I've been, you know, since 1993 with, with Clinton, with that scumbag and his war against Iraq, the first Iraq war, then the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the Bush wars with Iraq and, um, and Afghanistan and all of this regime change, trillions of dollars. And, you know, I'm anti-war, I'm march, I'm doing... You feel helpless. Will this ever turn around? And I hear this guy saying, no more wars of regime change. Literally, and in essence, an imperial retreat. Mm. Is it the whole thing? No. Mm -hmm. But it's not Hillary Clinton who wanted war. So we say yes. We are in the fourth stage. This is part of the general crisis. This is the working people without leadership. When, when we talk about lead, we're talking about purposeful, ideological, clear leadership rising up. As my friend Sandra talked about the attitudes in Cobb's Creek, the same rejection of the system. But then COVID hits in 2020. The system breaks. Hence, you could see it as COVID, but you could also see it as the maturing 
of long, long festering internal contradictions in the system. The system is unable to deal with COVID. South Korea did, China did. You did what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. India didn't, they, they're not any, they ain't dealt with it. No, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I well, they did. Well, they dealing with it better than the United States. Maybe. So. Well, because you know, um, the majority of COVID deaths are Americans. Yeah. You know, but it is a it is a testament to a systemic crisis. This is not a health crisis in its substance. It is systemic. In 2020, the summer of 22, I can always talk about this. The economy contracted by 30%, meaning it went into a depression. That is why all those trillions of dollars, where are you getting it from? We don't care. Hell, credit. <laughs> because if we do not, if we do not pay the working masses and make it possible for them to pay their mortgages and bills and buy some food, because ain't nobody working. Mm. We could have a general uprising that could bring the system down. Then the politics of, a, of what I would call the fifth stage of the general crisis. The politics are defined by what they call the center will not hold. When they say the center will not hold, what they're saying, see the United States political consensus is built around center right, center left. When they say left, it's not left, it's their left. Okay, the center, but after they fight it out and after election, everybody come together and we have to wage war. We have to bring down the communist regimes. We have to continue on stir. Okay, so I thought, you know, you say the people, the, the labor movement, all y'all in the Democrat, but the labor, labor gets nothing. But you gave the Democratic Party hundreds of millions of dollars and you get nothing. Your people get nothing. You, well, at least it's the lesser of the evils. That's what they have to tell people. But when the center collapse, the system, the political system is then driven by extremes. Mm -hmm. There is no center to rebuild the fracturing that goes on in elections. There is no center because there is a, a narrowing possibility of compromise between the working people and the ruling class. That is what we're looking at. That's the way I would explain it. That's the way I would articulate it. Not Republicans and Democrats, a separation between the vast majority of this country and this tiny parasitic financial oligarchy and their kleptocratic politicians. That's why they say, oh, you know, you got the House of Representatives, the Senate, the media, and then the fourth branch of government are the, um, what do they call it, the lobbyists. You know, 
okay, you lose your election in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, don't worry about it. A lobbying group will pick you up, you make more money. And all you do is go around and lobby elected officials by lobbying, they mean, hey, here's a couple hundred dollars, a couple hundred thousand. Um, look at here, you wanna go on down to Jamaica and hang out for the, for the weekend. And, you know what I'm saying? I know you have certain predispositions. You got a sex addiction, I can handle that for you. <laughs> I mean, I hate to use, I mean, I, I hate to keep it 100, but it I is, hate what it is, what it is. Don't, don't, don't nobody take it as an offensive thing. I'm not being, uh, you know, but the corruption of the whole political establishment, totally corrupt. And so, uh, now, the system, and this is what we're living through. You know, while, you know, for that period from the 70s, that, by the way, the, the mitigation of the crisis, China, that's why, that's why they're so angry at China, because China was the scapegoat, the scapegoat, the, not scapegoat. See, if, here, here's the deal. If they could win China by buying them all, that was a whole thing. They was going, you know, hey, look, we'll help you create millionaires. We're gonna create some billionaires. Y'all can get paid. You can have fun. You could be like us and so on and so forth. But then along came Xi Jinping. Yeah. And then the whole thing, but for a while, China became the new frontier of capitalism. And it, it was a, a safety valve. That's what I'm trying to say. But now there are no more safety valves. There are no more safety valves. And we're in what is now what I would call the fifth stage of the general crisis. And closer, I think, could be wrong. I don't like to overstate this mm -hmm. because, you know, we radicals, you know, we, we have a wish list. <laughs> you know, one, <laughs> I got my whole wish list. I mean, I like to see the ruling elite do bad. <laughs> you know, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, get me upset, you know, but my a wish list, one, the bank's do bad, they collapse. Mm -hmm. uh, all the politicians, a cat like Biden, mm -hmm. I'd like to see him go completely insane, <laughs> you know, yeah. on the job. I mean, I hate to say that, but I, I remember him back in his days. Hey. See, he wasn't always walking, you know, like shuffling along. <laughs> no, I mean, he used to have some, some zip in his step uh -huh. and he was arrogant. Mm -hmm. Oh man, oh yeah. So, I mean, I. This is my, so, but I don't, what up, man? I don't like, I don't like to just, oh, it's almost over, it's coming to an end, because I'm not a Trotskyite. Mm. <laughs> but we might be closer than ever to systemic collapse and ungovernability of the country. 
The other side of this is we might be closer to war than we've been. I mean, a major kind of conflagration. They keep pushing up on China and Russia. Now, how long are you going to think you can push up on them people? You know, you can't use nuclear blackmail because they got what you've got and more. So they can blackmail you on the nuclear side. And then you're going to push up on them in their own backyard. This is my, it's like you coming in my house. I'm armed to the teeth. You armed, but you coming in my house. So I have the upper hand. But the Biden administration, and was always, I, I have to say, you know, with all this, all these social Democrats, oh, we got to get Trump out because he's a fascist. I said, well, look, I don't know what your definition of fascism is, but how do you see war and peace? And then they go to Noam Chomsky. But the existential question is the climate. No hometown. That's not the immediate threat. It is war. And I knew that if Biden got in, the Clintons would get in. Mm -hmm. And I knew what Gloria, I knew who Gloria Newland is. And I knew her role in the overturning of the democratically elected government of the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I came to know better this, uh, this nut, Jake Sullivan, you know, the one with the, you know, look like he's out of the movie, <laughs> Halloween or something. <laughs> And then Anthony, Anthony Blinken. I knew ideologically that they were going to push the neocon, the neoliberal, the war agenda. And that's what they've done. I'll end on this. War is a manifestation of a political crisis, but it's also a manifestation of the inability of a ruling elite to resolve irreversible contradictions. War is not just, quote, a mistake. Oh, you killed the Archduke, and now I'm going to get revenge. Well, but there were other things going on even before that, that that may have been just the trigger. But the deeper contradictions, as Du Bois said, the African roots of the war, World War I as a war of colonial redivision. You know what I'm saying? But now, war, at least from the standpoint of the United States, these are wars for the survival of a system. We want China to retreat. Retreat from Africa, retreat from Belt and Road, retreat from reshaping re and redesigning its social economic system that will shut us out. You can come in, but based upon our rules. You ain't just coming up in here like that. You said, so war and threats of war. And then as they threaten war with Russia in Ukraine and with China in the South 
China Sea and Taiwan. Russia and China have a new alliance. This is really historic, tell you the truth, because it is not just economic, it is also military. So here you have three nuclear powers, three what they would call superpowers. In other words, they can deliver weapons of mass destruction to the other country. In other words, you can't just come over here with nuclear weapons. You're going to throw some missiles up in the air and they're going, and I got to, you know, no, I can, I can touch you. You know, it's just like Kim Jong-un said, I can touch you now. So you can touch me, I can touch you. So you don't think you're going to just kill all us and ain't nothing going to happen to you. We can, you know, we can, I, I can handle my own business to put it in more street terms. Mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> China surpassed the U.S. with the uh, supersonic missile. Hypersonic. Or hypersonic, That's yeah. No yeah, so it's not only just, we, yeah. I mean, it's it, they've, they've surpassed U.S. military. There is no question. And this is where, and I'll just end on this. Now, when a socialist country advances beyond the, the leading capitalist country. Economically, larger economy, technologically more advanced with the ability to diplomatically win alliances of the darker races. What does the United States do face with this. And then faced with a domestic situation that is not yet a hot civil war, but is not a cold civil war, is really a warm civil war. So we have to, I, I, this is and really the end, we in the free school, we have to think deeply because the people are going to be looking for a way to explain this and they will find us you know uh, you know like James Russell Lowell said truth forever on the scaffold wrong forever on the throne the truth will come the truth people will seek out the truth people want to know and when Sandra told me about Cobb's Creek, I said, that 80-year-old, the 85-year-old lady, tell her where the free school is. Uh, She'll yeah. love this. Yeah. She'll love it. You know, all of those working and middle-class people out in Cobb's Creek, tell them where the free school is. Let's sit down. Let's break bread. Mm -hmm. Ain't nobody going to tell nobody what to do. But this is our understanding. You know what I'm saying? This is the way we understand the world. And maybe our understanding can help you understand the world. And it is that in that dialogue between and among people who are looking for a way out that everybody will find the way forward. So that's, that's what I'm saying. I just want to go ahead. I was reading this article yesterday, and the title is uh, 
Biden's global democracy. Yes. Can hours endure? Can what? Can hours endure? Now, where, where's that article? This is the New Yorker, actually. In the New York, yes. And, um, you know, it does raise a lot of really fundamental questions, you know, like the sense of workers Biden's, you know, plan for um, the whole COVID plan for the winter. And 50%, I mean, the country is teetering on this axis. But, you know, this article is asking, is saying, I'm sorry, um, that, I mean, essentially that you have to look at Russia and China are not part of this democracy summit, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what are we- Tell everybody what that summit is, Divya. Summit on democracy. That'll take place starting on Monday. Yeah. And it will be virtual. Thanks, Doctor. Be virtual. Yeah. And so certain countries are invited. Singapore, I don't think, is invited mm -hmm. because it's, I, it's, I don't actually don't know what the relationship of Singapore and China is, but I imagine it is close. Um, but um, yeah. So certain countries are invited, certain countries are not. And the question is why? And you know, who is leading this democracy summit? And it also depends so much on the warm alliance between the Atlantic Council and the Atlantic Council. Um, and if these things are not in place, what authority does the person convening this summit have to say this is democracy?
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Solution is electric cars. I mean, who can afford electric cars? Okay. Anybody else? Oh, I just have a, your opening is always comprehensive. <laughs> so, but I just have a curiosity about the characterization of Trump's emergence from the political scene, his eventual election, and the voices that were unheard that he represented. That they finally uh, found a voice for their revenge and so on and so forth. Obama came up under similar out of nowhere circumstances, and he was elected not once, but twice. So, as Trump was speaking for a mass of emotion about the political imbalance of power and so forth, in Obama's case, since the emergence and election seemed to be comparable, what voices was he responding to? And it's significant when you look at him as a figure um, in a racist country and elected not once, but twice. Mm -hmm. So Obama? Yeah. Yeah, I, see, I don't think Obama is as complicated as sometimes he's made to look. I mean, when I say Obama, I'm talking about the politics that elected him. Okay. Um, and what, what Obama, his election represented the holding together of the Democratic coalition and expanding. In other words, the Blacks, labor, women, uh, expanding uh, his vote, uh, uh, people who voted him to white suburbs, mm -hmm. you know, those Republicans who had voted Republican and and in, in 2008, mm -hmm. shifted to Obama, you know. Um, and so he was able, and, and of course, you know, it's the electoral college. Yeah. So you don't have to get an absolute majority of the votes, although I think he did get an absolute majority. But he won the electoral college based upon that democratic coalition. When I say dem, I don't mean democracy, I'm talking about the Democratic Party coalition. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, hold on, let me just. Y'all put money because I got, I need some change. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My money is kind of funny these days. But, <laughs> but, um, but that's what it was designed to do. Obama was designed to give the Democratic Party, which is more than the Republicans, the party of the dominant sections of American finance capital and, and so on. It is the party of war, it is the richest party, it's the party of the wealthiest parts of the population. So Obama was not a, a radical, is not a change, he was a centrist, a centrist president. Um, and uh, the policies that go back to Clinton and through Bush, austerity and war. 
austerity and war. Um, so you say, well, he gave us uh, Obamacare. Okay, that's a weak version of universal health care, but nothing basically changed. And he did say, as he did, he saved the banks. He said, the only thing between you and the pitchforks is me. Mm. <laughs> you know, I will use my political capital to save you. But um, when you look at the fact that 70% of white, predominantly white counties that voted for Obama twice voted for Trump in 2016. 13% of Bernie Sanders voters voted for Trump. Trump represented a kind of a shifting and dissatisfaction. I think, I don't think that, I don't think that Obama did. I, I could be wrong. I know black people thought this was going to be a really great shift in the country, something equivalent to the uh, civil rights movement. Uh, but I thought it was disastrous. Now, you see, you, I, I think well, as, as I heard, you know, the women that, that Sandra, or the voters that Sandra was talking about in Cobb's Creek, they're fed up with it all. Mm -hmm. That's the way I would say, I don't know how you would look at it, Grady. Well, I, I think your uh, interpretation um, fits into your unarguable argument about the systemic nature of, of our politics and, and yeah, that, that, that that's uh, going to be it. It's just that uh, when you look at the salience of race mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in America, mm -hmm. um, I think that when you do the calculus of his emergence, mm -hmm. uh, his election mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and his governance mm -hmm. that um, one needs to factor in the way to look at that phenomenon is to look at what didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And which is to say that the whites who could have not voted for him because he's black decided not to not vote for him. Huh? Okay, that's an important psychological presence within a cohort talk, which you quite rightly says is structured and manipulated and controlled by the system. The Democratic Party has them, okay, and therefore, it is what it is. Okay, I'm not arguing against that because that's too cogent. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that there are, are factors in the political calculation that leads to an interpretation that I think needs to include those factors of social psychology and, and, and how those things are not so easily measured, the impact are not so easily tracked, but that does not mean that their historical reality can remain unaccounted for and unconsidered because add to the social psychological, the ideological. Okay, I would add as a part of the subjective as a part of the subjective thing. Yeah. And what is helpful about preschool when you say they're gonna come to us because they're gonna be hungry 
for a way out? How do you really look at this? And because it is so, uh, social, uh, psychological and ideological, it really becomes a, a calculus and a configuration that helps you look at all of reality. You're looking at the hardcore intractable facts of right, the system. Right, 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 and at the right, same right. time, you're looking at the soft, very malleable, very plastic entity called the human being. The human being. Right. And then even more uh, nuanced and problematic is the group mind, group identities, and, and all of these various all things. That, that. So that um, that um, comes comes to my mind. And then um, when I follow our discussions and I go to that point in time just before it gets it gets fixed. The masses are liberated, something has happened, and there is now systemic and massive justice. I mean, from the critique that we have to that point in time, there is an in-between. And in-between where we are now with our analysis and critique and where we are now with that X resolution, there is an in-between period of historical time where all of your dynamics are in place. My question remains, what about the transitional persons and positions in that historical movement from crisis, fifth stage, collapse, analysis, to whatever that's going to be. How is it going to be fixed? Um, when I was in grad school, our creative problem solving teacher, um, he had the patent on Cottonelle toilet paper. So, so he, that was his claim to fame. He's a very bright guy. And, and, and also very- really had to be. Right, right, right. He got it. Yeah, he got it. And how he got it, I don't know. And also he's a very wealthy uh, person. And he told us that when you are managing an organization or group of people, you always imagine the solution, but then you regress in time to various periods before the final answer. And then he described it as taking a, a photo of the people, the activities, the position, the whole dynamic that is just before your desired answer and, and solution. So uh, when we were talking about where is free school going, you mentioned uh, creative ideological synthesis. Is that your phrasing? You had mentioned a creative ideological synthesis, something, something like that. Um, that fits in that in-between period, what I'm calling that transition. And um, I would like to hear more of an accounting for events, people, points of view, positions, movement and society that are transitional to the ultimate systemic justice, because that is a point in time that we're envisioning. But what I'm not hearing is a praxis either that we're going to create 
strategically and who we're going to direct that practice to in order to bring the change about. So what you're asking for is basically a positive, like a, like you're asking for like, because we're looking at the, the conditions are negative, da, 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 we're talking about negative, things are bad, but we have a goal. And basically what you're saying is, okay, what is the positive political practice? Well, what, what is, what it, however it happens, we are positing, we are presupposing that there's an end state, that there's an accurate analysis and we keep at it, yeah. we're gonna get somewhere. Okay, we've gotten there. What are the transitional stages in that I mean, I'm not even assume that we've gotten there in that way because if we're talking no, I was just saying that I don't think we can assume that we have gotten to where it is that you are talking about because in my mind you're talking about ideological clarity right you're talking I'm about talking about a concrete specific correction of the injustices in the society and I'd like to uh, I'm just saying I'm not saying that we there I don't know how you imagine it but in historical time, there's something that's going to resemble what you think the world should look like. And if our conversations and our criticism are geared toward not just saying what's wrong, but we are looking at an evolution of some sort at some point in time, where the world is going to be systemically better, whatever that looks like, I don't know. Yeah, well, Who if, can know? If we can, if we can have that 80-year-old woman or whoever, or the people from KNA come in here, that which is part of like the process of what you know, kind of free school is about. Um, then we can talk about where it is we're going to go and how what that's going to, you know, these as a question of the state, how that's going to function. But if it's at like a level of like mm -hmm. trying to develop clarity amongst the people and um, also amongst ourselves, exactly. then yep. we should mm -hmm. also focus with what Doc is saying. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, like at the beginning, like let's start here. That Doc said, Doc said, um, there's the eight year old woman, and she said, let it burn, right? And Doc, right, exactly. And Doc said, it. wait, do you hear that part that we're talking about? The earlier part of the stories about his Yeah. Okay. 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 And so he said at the beginning of his, you know, at the beginning of uh, Doc's introduction today, he talked about uh, inflation. He talked about the, uh, you know, this burning political system, the klepto, uh, kleptocracy, right? Um, so what I'm, what I'm going to do is kind of describe the political practice of the Saturday preschool. Uh, well, how, you know, the political practices um, in, in, it, in its base at, at the moment is being able to describe the conditions under the, the terms of, of uh, free, the uh, framework that and, and the revolutionary framework that the free school has come up with. Nobody can articulate. I mean, she, you know, the, what, what the lady is saying, she's saying let it burn, right? Why is she saying let it burn? She hates the political system. I hate the political system. You hate the political system. That's why we're here. You know what I mean? But what she can't necessarily articulate, and that's not saying that she can't, what, but she can't articulate, okay, well, what is all the problems? She can't articulate all the, uh, and the solutions and how we're gonna get there, da, 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 da. So what's important about the Saturday Free School is that we're able to articulate um, a problem in a way that, uh, you know, or frees up our own political agency. We're not trapped in the Democratic Party frame, framework. We're not trapped in a leftist framework. We're not trapped in a, 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 a an intelligentsia college framework ideology. We're not trapped in these things. We're 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 uh, 
we're creating a type of political freedom. And I feel that that agency, agency, I feel that that's important because, you know, when we're saying, okay, well, how are we going to develop a political practice? Is that what you're, that's kind of what you're saying? That, that is, I, I mentioned that, but that's just- More or less. That, that's not- Yeah, well, here, here, what are you trying to say? Or, but that's just, my, just, just to clarify. I, 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 that wasn't my main point about transition, by the way. The transition is the fact that, you know, that like, to go, I mean, it's, even, even take yourself, even take your, like, even take our own experience with the development. You know, what I mean? it's easy to say, okay, well, the transition that we're going to, okay, the transition, we're going to get all these people and we're going to say all these things, that, but the, the, see, that's, that's Baldwin, you know, that's King, there's a personal aspect. You cannot leave yourself out the mix. If you do that, you end up judging, you end up holding yourself outside, you end up not really participating and you're like, and you don't transform. Right. But when you're in the mix, you know, it, it becomes a thing where, you know, it, things become real. You know what I mean? The reality of political change, the reality of transform, personal transformation, the reality of taking responsibility. So it, 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 it so when it comes to a political practice, then it, it's, it's, well, like, we're going to talk about all the reading groups. We're going to talk about X, Y, and Z. But these are developments from literally being able to think, think, read, and then uh, and and then political action comes from one's political thinking. It starts here, but it starts here. That's personal. That's personal and political. Do you know what I mean? And so I my I I totally agree with everything you said. The point that I'm making about the ultimate systemic justice and improvement in the world is to pay attention in the broader society, not just to what we as change agents are doing mm -hmm. to help politically, practically bring it about. I'm talking about people that are not part of preschool. I'm talking about other phenomenon, other parties, other personalities, publications, theories, whatever events are happening in the greater world that seem to indicate that there is a shift of movement toward acknowledging systemic justice and doing something about it. That's why we look at the old lady in China. Well, can I just say this one? Mm -hmm. You know, I, of course, what I talked about was systemic breakdown. Yes. You know, and perhaps, you know, did not give enough attention to what comes after systemic breakdown. But one of the things I, I, I was trying to do was to, um, establish uh, beyond question, not beyond question, but establish strongly what we are, what the situation is. For instance, what, it, what links this high rate of murder among young black men mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. to the old lady mm -hmm. in Cobbs Creek mm -hmm. to, right. um, to Kensington and the drug market mm -hmm. uh, to uh, black people saying I'm fed up with this democratic thing. What and more, we could give more examples, mm -hmm. but what links all of this? Is there a common thread? So that when we talk about the old lady saying, let it burn, I don't care. I've wanted this since Emmett Till's murder. And the person, the white young person shooting dope out in Kensington, is there a unifying thread? And my argument is 
that the unifying thread is the current stage of the general crisis. Or put it another way, the current stage of the general breakdown of the imperialist system. Now, I, I, I think we're so, um, in this moment, there can be no revolutionary practice that does not help the great mass of people, as many as we can influence, understand that this, under the current system, our conditions will not improve. I guess that's mm -hmm. what I was getting. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that in itself, that is what you might call lesson one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the school, in the people's school of revolutionary understanding, yeah. <laughs> we literally have to begin there. Mm -hmm. Because if we do not acknowledge that there's something wrong systemically, right, right, right. that Biden ain't going to fix it, Build Back Better ain't going to fix it, uh, the current political debates and, and the Democrats, that's not... No, there is something more profound going on. That that's all I was saying. And I agree with you. Yeah. And that and, you. and and you're right. I mean, transitions are difficult, but transitions have to begin somewhere, and transitions can't occur without the great mass of people. That's yeah. all. Oh, go go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah. Two things that I thought about as you were giving the introduction were I think even like yeah, the whole term of like the center, like political center, all that stuff. I think, I feel like you've clarified a lot for me that it's not even about like whatever politically that center is like in the grand scheme of things, but it's more about like the consensus of a society, the consensus that governs a society and that consensus breaking down. Um, and I think like what we're seeing with like the Biden administration um, and all of these, yeah, like the woke stuff is like, they know that the previous consensus didn't, is no longer gonna be able to work. And so, I mean, I feel like you say this a lot, but that they're trying to establish a new consensus um, around which they think that enough people would be united to basically be okay with the current system. Um, and I think the second thing that I, I was thinking about as you were talking was um, yeah like why peace is like genuinely like the revolutionary principle to organize around because I think the way that you put it as like war is the strategy of the ruling class to um, when they can't resolve their internal contradictions I think it's like the the struggle for peace is the repudiation of the people against basically like the strategy and tactics of the ruling class to try to save the system and instead like the people are saying like no like let's actually like let's actually like work this out and like let's actually like try to like in a sense like bring bring the the conflict home. Yeah. Question, you know isn't it interesting that for them and if, if we could get this point across this is another point that the ruling elite needs war to save themselves and their system. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what does that say about the rot and decadence mm -hmm. of the system? Mm -hmm. oh, I don't, I don't yeah. know. No, that was a...
That's what made me think of African roots of war. No. African yeah. roots of war, yeah. After they had to go to war to keep colonies, you know. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Go ahead, Jimmy. Speak up a little bit, Jimmy. Um, you know, picking up on that conversation between Jacob and Bailey. Grady. Grady, I'm so sorry. Trust me, I've been called worse. I'm going to you, Bailey. You might rise up by my ancestral spirit. I was named after the reverend, the right rare reverend Grady. Walker. Oh, okay. He Walker. might come and get. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think it's, um, yeah. Again, apologies. Um, the, the question is uh, underneath that, it seemed like what is the ideal? And do we have an ideal that we're striving towards? Because so much of what Du Bois is doing, for example, I'm just invoking it because he left this whole blueprint. For America, he left this whole blueprint for America in terms of education, in, in terms of um, you know government, in terms of art. All of this is a comprehensive program for the transformation of civilization, starting with the individual. But now this question, I think, we're all you know, as long as we keep moving with the masses of Americans. I mean, like, for example, young Americans, 52% of young people in the US believe the country's democracy is either in trouble or in failed democracy. So now this is NPR, you know what I'm saying? And if that's the case, what is, what is the basis of something like the summit for democracy? I mean, if, this is coming from a, this platform, and then you know, even Fox News. But I mean, you know what I'm saying? 52% of young adults surveyed by US democracy, uh, the Harvard poll line. I mean, even if you are the ruling elite, you have to reckon with the fact that the way that you're ruling is not working. I mean, it's not any kind of conspiracy, it's not, it's just. What you see it, you know, when you walk out the doors. And so I think it's kind of like moving, moving with the people. But at the same time, trying to think about what what could be what could what could it be? No, I just really am interested in these five stages thing. Um, but also like how mm, well it makes me think of like how neocolonialism is important, like as a concept. Um like neocolonialism is important. Because it's that thing of what you said about production and then finance capital here. I'm just think, I just think that I'm just, I think that it was an important formulation, um, but I'm excited about myself. Okay. Yeah. 
you know, um, you know, I, I, in a certain way, I was trying, I was even problematizing yeah. the whole concept of a general crisis mm -hmm. or stages of a general crisis. Mm -hmm. I think if we can talk, at least if we can think about yeah. different stages mm -hmm. of a crisis. Now, we can debate whether Lenin's thesis was right that imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism and itself a, uh, a stage of a general crisis. You know, a crisis from which capitalism cannot uh, recover. And therefore, it would fit Lenin's uh, political strategy to say that the only solution to this general real solution to the general crisis of capitalism is socialism. Mm -hmm. Now, apropos what Divya just re read, over 50% of young people, and that's probably a conservative number, you know, since it comes from Harvard, and who can trust them, you know, but um, if 50% of young people said that democracy is not working, I take the figure that 70% of the American people say that the future is not bright, or the future does not look good for this country. That is a, uh, a judgment upon the rule of the ruling class. There's no question about it, that you all have messed up. I'm back to Eddie, Eddie's thing. You've got to define who is responsible. This is not just a system. Their policies made by people. You understand that benefited some and have hurt the vast majority. But if there is such a thing as a general crisis, my point was, and this, this is the question of transitions, and transitions are the most difficult, I would say, Rainey. How do we get out of this? Well, the Chinese Revolution said a new democracy, a people's republic. Well, maybe we can learn something from that. If this democracy is not working, do we say we don't want democracy? We can say, yeah, we want democracy, but not this kind. We want a new democracy, a people's republic. Or even if you want to go back to Rousseau, and of course, Danny Jacobs was writing on this recently. Yeah. If you want to go back, the struggle of, for equality. Yeah, 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 yeah. We want an equal a system of human equality. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead, no, Sarah. I'm sorry. It's just on that concept of stages. Stages, yeah. Because I don't think, uh, from what you're saying, also, you know, a stage isn't like, okay, um, how do you say like a definite thing? You know, it's just like a moment. You know what I mean? Right. Yes, that's, um, right. that's right. So that's right. Even that's if you do say five, that doesn't mean there might not be six. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, we right. might not move to a different yeah. stage. Yeah. Um, Can I ask a question? This is very important because I don't know if I'm completely committed to the stages thesis myself. Okay, what are you saying? Well, I'm just saying, I, if you reject it, I won't argue with you. Okay. If you accept it, 
that doesn't mean I will support you. Yeah. But I'm just saying this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's but it is a way of looking at this yeah. in a large historical. We're talking about 150 years, let us say, of a crisis. If Lenin is right, that this is the final stage of capitalism. Well, if it's the final stage, it's really hung around for quite a long time. You know what I'm saying? But the, the idea of stages is that over this period, things have gotten worse and the crisis systemically has gotten worse. Now we have certain indications. World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, you know, and so on. Well, then you could say, well, the economic crisis of 2008, 2010, we could say that. And then we could say what we have experienced with COVID going forward. But um, yeah, I'm sorry, but that that's what I was saying, that there is a history to this crisis. Is it a stage by stage history or is it, I think as you were putting it, so more indefinite, yeah. which but, I would. Yeah, I just only think that's important because I think uh, the ruling class ideology wants to smear all history. Yeah, you right. Know, well, that's you know, mm -hmm. about everything but what has happened. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But to have that argument um, handy, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, is beneficial for people. I think you're right. Because it, you know, just like kind of in my own reflections, I can think of people who are, you know, you know, uncomfortable with Trump, for instance, or something like that, or don't understand, um, you know, what we what we talk about with China, um, and is yeah. I'm thinking kind of similarly along the lines of gravy in that, like, it's not that I'm condemning you for what it is that you're thinking about. Um, but it, if we are to move forward, and we have to figure out how we can come together and move forward and do, you know, uh, in that way. So, um, it's just interesting, like the, like last week we were talking about, or John Hahn was talking about that woman who, Mar Marjorie, what's her name? Marjorie Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. And just how like there's that like, I don't know, possibility of an alliance of forces that have not been aligned in a way that we are familiar with. Um, but that is something that can happen if, you know, we're kind of understanding that we're in a different set of um, different, I don't know, different kind of like stage. Conditions, conditions. You're right, right, go ahead, keep going. No, but it's just interesting because, you know, different conditions, you, you're talking about a different way of seeing um, what is good and what is not. And if you're not used to- well, Can I put it another yeah. way? What is possible what is and possible. what is not. Yeah, okay, what is possible. Which is, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, 
I'm sorry, go ahead, Jerry. I'm well, sorry. No, what, what Serpina was saying just reminded me of a quote from Walter Gershett that we read. Yeah. We were studying the Korean War when he says, history repeats itself, but the balance of forces change. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I actually think that's a really- Could you explain that a little Like he's more? saying like that, you know, there are, even in terms of, you know, like you could say like the world wars, or you could say from the Korean War to the Vietnam, mm -hmm. you could say like history repeats itself, mm -hmm. but what was, possible with the Korean War, it almost sets the stage for then what's later possible in the Vietnam War mm -hmm. in terms of, first of all, with the Korean War, like the fact they're even able to stop the U.S. from basically waging World War III mm -hmm. on Asia, mm -hmm. you know, and then with the Vietnam War that you're able to completely expel the U.S. and to achieve unification, all those things. Mm -hmm. And I think, I guess that's also like applicable for the U.S. in that, yeah, like you have I don't know whether you call like stages or another framework or terminology, but that, you know, there's things come back but that it's not going to like the resolution will necessarily be what it like the same as what it was before, I guess. This is very, and the practice right. is not going to be what was before. Yeah. This reminds, oh, go, go, go ahead. No, I'm just. Oh. Lost in thought. I mean, yeah, I mean, what is whiteness? Also, the question of what is whiteness? Maybe whiteness is more true of like Nicole, Nicole, what's her name? Nicole Hannah Jones than uh, a poor white worker in these times. Um, and the wages of whiteness have yeah. changed. Um, the meaning has changed. Um, we also have some comments, but we can. Can I just say one, one small thing? This reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Tara. And she asked me, she was asked me, and tell me if I'm right about this, Tara. You asked me about something to the effect of what, what would the leadership or vanguard forces of the people look like? Remember? And, um, and which gets back to the question of the Leninist party versus something different. And I think this all relates, one of the things, I, as I remember our conversation, that I suggest, I don't know whether I use these words, that conditions would decide that. Mm -hmm. And that the conditions that Lenin wrote about and wrote under were conditions of illegality, you know, revolutionaries were either in exile outside of the country, underground, or locked up. So his concept of the party kind of reflected those conditions. The other conditionality was that most of the workers and peasants in Russia were completely illiterate. Most were, the vast majority were separated into small towns and, and so on and villages and so, such and so forth. Well, if you look at so many of the conditions of life of the people of this country, let us say, they're very different than that. We don't have a high level of, of, of comprehensive literacy, but the vast majority of people read and write and can count. Um, most people uh, have a idea of this is a whole nation and there are politics and economic conditions that affect all of us, so to speak. So we're not like isolated into villages. 
So what would be the form of, let us call it a vanguard, or how would leadership of the people manifest itself? And I think that is a question that we must not dogmatically answer, but must answer, I think, as, as Jerry said it, on the basis of defining the conditions out of which leadership will emerge. Yeah. Now, we, we, can, we have to say the left is collapsed. I mean, if you, you know, because if <laughs> the left more or less is the left wing of the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. you know, they function as an army or cadre of people to cancel anybody that would leave the Democratic Party from the left, huh. you know, but they're incapable of giving genuine leadership. So I think the question of how leadership will be configured is still a question that has to be answered on the basis of understanding the conditions and to Brady's, to Brady's, Brady. Yeah, okay. You're not, what, what, did, what did Divya call you? And see, now I'm, I'm calling you Brady. And so now, but Brady's uh, question, see the transition is political. It is a transition away from the existing leadership of the country, the leadership elite, the leadership class, the ruling class, to something new mm -hmm. and how that will be achieved. And then, um, then new conditions are created. Then we ask the question again, excuse me, how will leadership in the next stage configure itself? Mm -hmm. And then to pick up on your point, my question then becomes in this in-between period, mm -hmm. Can you identify in the society actors, personalities, positions, points of view that are indicators of a transition? Well, but see, let me say this. Let or me say is it always manifested in another way? Well, yeah, in another way. Because see, once you once you get into uh, predicting yeah. and saying who in a in a fluid situation. Mm -hmm a situation of emergence, mm -hmm. you know, where there are always going to be contradictions and even sharpening contradictions, even among the people and even among those who are seeking change. Mm -hmm. All of that cannot be answered. Well, first of all, in academic form. First of all, leave the academics to them to their own. Right, let them, let right, them go right, right. and wallow in the mud as they. You know. But this is this. But but let's uh, let's go to some of the comments. Uh, okay, Shantanu, um, on this question of drugs, when Pfizer reported that their vaccine was ninety one percent effective against COVID, the U.S. promptly bought every single dose of the vaccine that Pfizer prepared. Countries like India didn't even get a chance to get the Pfizer vaccine. They instead depended on vaccines they produced within the country and fully vaccinated 33% of the entire population, which is more than the entire population of the U.S. Pfizer reported that their efficiency rate fell to 27% after six months, and we see fully vaccinated people getting infected for the second or third time. India, on the other hand, is doing fine. India, on the other hand, what? Is doing fine. He also writes that in the 1960s and 70s, it was the FBI pumping addictive drugs into the black community in an effort to control them. 
in the modern era, it's big pharma companies pumping addictive opioid drugs into both white and black poor communities for greed, but also in an effort to suppress any kind of mass movement. Oxycontin was one of these drugs that came to light, but who knows how many more exist that haven't been picked up by the media. Um, Samir says, in the last century, fascism revolved around a strong man and a cult of personality and a strong state. In this century, fascism will be corporate, digital, and anonymous. This makes identifying the enemy difficult. Political education is the primary task. Daniel Lee Eisenberg Jacobs writes, the system, in quotes, is in crisis when there is prosperity, a, minus a growing economy, uh, equals growing exploitation of the masses. Growing waste of human potential. World War I was the opportunity missed for revolution, why Lenin had to split the Second International, but it was not a depression like 1929. The 60s too was not a period of economic depression, and yet it was a total upheaval because masses of people, e.g. the Black Freedom Struggle, were excluded from society. The stabilization first post-World War II was also based on the accommodation to Jim Crow, Dixiecrats and Democrats exclusion of women from most work, imperial domination. Capitalism is a crisis even when it isn't healthy and working. Otherwise, we could just have a Keynesian fix. We wouldn't need socialism. Doc, people are leaving the Democratic Party, and yet a significant influential group are tied to one of the major capitalist parties. Why do people continue to be attached to capitalist parties? I think this is one of the most important questions. Doc's point about the role of the left with respect to the Democratic Party is spot on. Uh, I'll just read one more by Daryl Wasteland Mitchell. Wars of survival for a system, the system of capitalism sums up everything for me. Lots of material covered. Heading, general crisis of capital, our stage, fifth stage of the general crisis of crisis. Deeply interesting. Money as a social power and the Nixon years. Woo, 19, <laughs> phew, 1980, collapse and overthrow of Soviet power, say 1991. 1991, Los Angeles Rebellion, 2001, Crisis of 2008, Realignment, Detroit Social Forum, Occupy Wall Street, 2010 slash 2011, Trump as fascist, Biden is just as fascist, lots of stuff, a whole session need on general crisis of capital, why and how the October Revolution and the establishment of the USSR created the physical limits to the advance of capital, great presentation. Yeah, it well, there's one more by Daniel Lee. Shall I read it? Okay. Highest stage for Lenin meant the highest necessity of revolution. World War I posed a question in the very socialist movement by forcing them to choose a side. So we could regress in grasping the necessity. I think the suspicion of stages is very much on point about this. We could repeat stages, comma, go back to the beginning. Uh, he quotes Lenin, a development by leaps, catastrophes, and revolution, breaks in continuity, the transformation of quantity into quality, inner impulses toward development, imparted by the contradiction and conflict of various forces and tendencies acting on a given body or within a given phenomenon or within a given society, the interdependence and the closest and indissoluble connection between all aspects of any phenomenon. Can I just say one thing? And that's uh, Danny brings that up very well. You know, if if you want an example of how to apply dialectical thinking to political movements, Lenin is the man. I don't know anybody, just, and that quote that, um, that Danny brought forward there, you know, Lenin was a real student of Hegelian dialectics and um, 
to understand the contradictions and the movement of forces in periods of transition. Uh, or in, and, and this, is, this is a big question, periods of breakdown and transition, are they separate? Or are they dialectically connected? You know, and if they're dialectically connected and they're very difficult, both the breakdown and the transition are very difficult to always understand. You're in the, this is what I throw of it. You're in the throat. Just, this is what, um, what Jake was saying. I mean, you're analyzing something that you're very much a part of. So you can't, you're not an object, quote, objective scientist. You're part of the movements, the change that you're trying to analyze, and hence the need for a methodology, a philosophical or logical method of analysis that gives you kind of a, um, I was, I was going to say advantage or upper hand in understanding the very things that you are involved in and that, that you, pardon me, that you have a stake in. I guess I'm like in looking at transitions and I'm looking at individuals and personalities who in the midst of the breakdown and the ensuing transition are relative to your critique and advocacy for systemic justice, who out there, granted, it's generally indeterminate, you can't be precise and certain, but who of those persons who I'm positing could be transitional figures that you identify could possibly be on an ideological basis, an ally or an accomplice in terms of what you're doing? or what you're envisioning, or how you're critiquing. Well, can, can I ask you a question? Why would, why would you talk about individuals and not political forces? I, 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 you, I, I would, of course, talk about political forces. Right. It's just that my thought lately- And see the individuals as representatives of political of, forces. Of course. I like the idiosyncra idiosyncrasy mm -hmm. of Marjorie Taylor Greene's mm -hmm. identification. That is significant. Um, if looking at groups and forces, you look at the white working class, I would be looking for signs within that cohort that they have come to a realization of the systemic analysis that you're talking about, and their enemies are greedy white capitalists who won't give them a decent wage, and that the refusal historically to align their economic interests and their political interests and the avoidance of the black working class says that that becomes it remains enigmatic but it also talks about to me amongst white people there is a systemic psychological oppression in their minds and that racism is a code and facilitator of keeping their minds in a totally illogical Unself-interest aware. Let me say this, Grady, mm -hmm. because I know it is, um, I'll put it popular among Black folk, certain thinking Black folk, to always say that the white worker is so backward. The white worker always votes against his interests. Mm -hmm. The assumption is that Black workers are always voting for our interests. Mm -hmm. 
I could see that we would not. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that yeah. myself. Well, I, I think what we see, you know, some of the stories I was trying to tell where Black folks are saying we're fed up mm. in voting against our interests, i.e., for these no good politicians. But the point that I wanted to make is um, I'll do it by a story. It always happens. For example, I'm talking to a friend on the phone who I would presume, who he, he presumes that he is progressive, does nothing, but he's progressive, you know, but, uh, but he's a friend, good conversationalist. And if I want to know what, what people are talking about on WURD, I turn to him, you know, but so I said, and I think it's a fact that in politics at this stage in the United States, class is playing a much larger role. People would argue with that. There are a lot of people, oh, no, it's not, uh, because the white working class or the working class is homophobic, transgender, anti-transgender, uh, racist, yada, yada. Everything that's wrong with society, you could throw at the working class. This is all the working class's fault. You know what I'm saying? So my friend, which kind of ended the conversation said, but how are they gonna deal with white supremacy? Well, that's a question. But to use that point to trump the point of class being ascendant, in other words, poverty, inflation, unemployment, uh, low wages, whatever are identified with working class people to say, well, what about what they gonna do about white supremacy? Well, they do, they do something about white supremacy to the extent that they fight against the ills of capitalist exploitation of themselves. I mean, in the 1930s, the working, the white workers were far more racist than they are today. Mm. But when they wanted to organize uh, the, the Ford plants or the Chrysler plants, what was the slogan? Black and white unite and fight. They didn't say blacks and anti-racist whites <laughs> unite and fight. They said it because you can't do it that way. See, that is the politics of defeatism. It's a, it is the politics of really identity politics, which then is exposed mm. as a clear ruling class uh, mechanism to make sure there's never unity among the progressive struggling people. Right. If all I, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, let me let Serafina and then dip yeah. I, I, was just, I was just thinking that like, uh, about this thing about the possibilities you know, that can emerge in a new emerging situation, I guess. Um, just how, like, it's about the the line, the political principle, you know? Like, if you can, it's about getting that right. Uh, it comes back to uh, political education for me to be able to see, like, okay, well, who is doing what and why? Um, and how does that align with the working class or doesn't it align with any progressive? Um, forces. Um, so things can look different, but if 
the principle is the same and if the principle is peace, democracy, then that's, you know, then we go with that. Um, so it, it, again, it doesn't matter the performance, I, I, I guess, you know, the essence. And I agree with this. Things, you know, like uh, I think uh, Lenin said, quantity and quality. Mm -hmm. By quantity, he means incremental change. Sometimes the increments are big, sometimes they're very small, but nothing happens all overnight. You know, you don't just go from quality to quality, you go from quantitative change to qualitative change. And I think those kind of logical categories are very important, at least to assist our thinking. It doesn't tell us what to think, because really you got to know what to think. The substance of thought is still the actual experience. That's the essence of thought. We're not, you know, otherwise you just go into metaphysics, you know, that you're just arguing um, broad ideas without any connection to life. Um, yeah, I'm just stop. <laughs> oh, go, go ahead, Debbie. I'm sorry. Um, two things come to mind. First is, and it goes back to the 1619 project. Oh, yeah. Those kinds of arguments which don't see racism as a relation that evolves, seeing it as an abstraction, as an idea. It's not just an idea. It's, it's tantamount to saying that Europeans came to, I think the 1619 project seems to me, underlying claim is that you know, Europeans come to America with this plan of enslaving Black people. <laughs> That's not how it worked. It became profitable because this market was open in uh, West Africa, where, and, it was, and as Eric Williams said, it, be, it became convenient because he said they would go to the moon if they could, if they could find cheap labor. It just so happened that Africa was closer. And then number two, you know, thinking about this democracy question, and why it is that young people are dissatisfied with democracy. And the flip side of the democracy debate is always authoritarianism, You're right? right? Mm -hmm. And so this summit on democracy, what's so interesting is it has three core pillars or themes. Get this, defending democracy against authoritarianism, fighting corruption, and promoting respect for human rights. Stop, because That's, we've done this, right? So they dig it. So we already know the source of that, as we would say, BS. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so this is the thing is if people are dissatisfied with democracy, then are they saying they want, quote, authoritarianism? And if that's the case, what is authoritarianism? They want less crime, they want less war. They want bread. And if it takes an authority to do that, that's what, that's what they're saying. In my reading of this, if I'm mistaken, forgive me. Um, but I mean, this whole thing is obfuscation in many ways. Uh, this uh, binary between democracy and authoritarianism is, you know, I looking 
in a forward optimistic way, what would it mean to invite China and Russia to the democracy summit? That would be something to actually imagine in this phase of um, relations. And you know, this racism, this whole identity yeah. thing has, and even King would say, I think, it's like, if you're for one group of poor people, you can't be against another group of poor people. <laughs> Or any people, I mean, even if you're wealthy. See, I think this is very interesting, apropos our discussion of the dialectical method and the method of logical binaries. Somehow, bourgeois thinkers all are, are imprisoned by binary thinking. For example, authoritarian, if you're not a democracy which we'll never define you know or another way of putting it if you don't follow white american elites then you're an authoritarian if you don't say that america has the greatest system that was ever produced then you're an authority i accuse you of being an authoritarian that's just like ibram kendi i mean you talk about the abuse of method either you you're a racist or you're an anti-racist. There is no in-between. So you say, well, Ibram, what is a racist? He says, well, I'll tell you, it's very simple. A racist is a person that adheres to or follows racist policies. You say, well, Ibram, you have not helped me to understand anything thus far. I'm still trapped in your binaries. You say, well, well, who decides what a racist policy and what an anti-racist policy is? People like myself who teach in universities and got awards from various uh, bourgeois institutions. I mean, look, if, and I agree with you, any social relationship is defined by dialectical contradictions. If Marx did nothing else, he established a way to study economics using dialectical logic, a great achievement. That doesn't end the story, of course, but at least we're not trapped in this either or. Oh, uh, you take, a Kendi could call me a racist. He called himself a racist, by the way. You know, <laughs> Tony, you're a racist. I said, well, why am I racist? You support Trump. Well, um, you supported Biden. <laughs> I mean, you supported Hillary Clinton. What about the crime bill of 19? That wasn't racist? No, but they have, you see, then it becomes, I, I mean, I hate to put it, it all becomes a subjective yeah, thing. Yeah. And truth is determined. This is the point. Authoritarian, author, authoritarian, author, as, as authoritarian. In other words, what constitutes truth? Truth are the values, beliefs, and statements of people in authority. Mm -hmm. Biden is president of the United States. 
so he can tell us what democracy is. Except if you live in Kensington, or except if you live right up the street here. I don't feel, I don't see your democracy, President Biden. You see what I'm saying? So what he is calling authoritarianism is anybody, you, or anybody that he disagrees with. I define myself because it's all binary. It's a, hey, look, just one last thing. We don't have to make it all sophisticated and so on and so forth. But they want to keep us trapped in Aristotle. A is identity, A is A. A is not, not A. And then the problem, the law of the excluded middle. Something can't be itself and its opposite at the same time, except the fact that things are themselves and their opposite all the time. And that's a definition of life. Yeah, and good and evil. Huh? Well, good and evil, yeah. There is no absolute. Right. Yeah. And this, and well, okay. So, so what, see this, I'm gonna tell you another thing. This is why bourgeois democracy needs to enslave people to a jive kind of religious metaphysics mm -hmm. because that's the ultimate authority. Right. Oh, Biden is a Catholic. He prays in the Catholic church. So he's in touch with a higher authority. That, that informs his authority. <laughs> the higher authority informs his authority. You dig, you dig the trap. It, it's a deep, I mean, but then it's a trap and it's deep, but it's hilarious. Sometimes I, I feel like falling out on the floor. It's, it's the only person that could do justice to this is Richard Pryor. Maybe Dave Chappelle on a good day. <laughs> or this is this is this is laughable. This is the and the other thing. Who defines are those in power? They don't really hide that. Oh, we're gonna get all these nations to come. Did they tell you they blackmailed and coerced half of them? You ain't gonna get no government loans. You don't show up, and you better act like you know. Well, that's the gangster tendency of so-called Western democracy. Right. You know, I'm going to gangster you into accepting my definitions. I, mean, I hate to forgive me. And, and of course, when you get to Biden, as I always say, you know, his brain cells are diminishing rapidly. The man ain't who he used to be, believe me. Like they say, sometimes you drink too much of that bad, bad whiskey. But anyway, hey, listen, y'all, uh, if there's no other discussion on this point, suppose we move on to the next part of our day, which is the discussion of the various, um, how do we call them? The various groups. study groups. You want to call them reading groups? Study branches of the tree. <laughs> branches of the tree. Y'all want to call them that? <laughs> okay. No. We don't know. No. I mean, because. <laughs> the limbs of the organism. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, because we're dealing with a dialectical situation. Right. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. What else? <laughs>
Okay, so maybe we could start with the Lotus Collective. Oh, Anna. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. I'm trying to even like, where do I start? But I guess a lot of what we're doing right now. Um, well, just tell us what the Lotus, give us a little history yeah. of the Lotus Collective. Um, how much history? Which much of you appropriate? I'll leave that up to you all. <laughs> all right, well, if anyone else wants to supplement, well, so yeah, I mean, so we, so Lotus Collective, we came into being in 2019. Um, we were actually an outgrowth, we, we were like an outgrowth of um, this thing, this, this group at Penn, it's called Student Labor um, Action Project. Project. Which um, was it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think like Michelle was spearheading like the. You found it, didn't you? I didn't found it. I just carried on the tradition. Yeah. Yeah, and um, Michelle, like, well, she, well, she founded like the third iteration of it, which was like aimed at um improving like the wages of the dining hall workers. But anyway, so over the summer. We had a reading group um, that that some of us um, took part in. We started out reading Living for Change by Grace Lee Boggs. Um, yeah, and then, and then eventually like one thing led to another and that reading group or a lot of the foundations and the ideas behind it. Um, I think like, you know, Michelle and some other people wanted to continue like the search for ideas um and it, it eventually became lotus collective that fall um and we also you know received a lot of guidance you know from like nandita and, and like which is how we sort of we, we weren't just like a floating reading group on our own you know this it's it's how we became like you know planted in the tradition of the free school and like the black freedom struggle and all of that so um yeah, we've been reading, you know, we we anchor our readings in Baldwin, Du Bois, and King, although lately we've been also branching out into some new, like, more creative directions. You know, I think we've been reading for a long time, and I think, like, we've always wanted to think, you know, how do we politically practice, but, you know, there's always issues of timing, when is the right time, you know, how do, how do we, you know, determine, like, how, if, if we're ideologically prepared, um, and now, what we're doing is, you know, we're actually leaning into like a sociological bent that a lot of us in the group have had. Um, so now we're we're making plans, preparing um, to embark on a sociological project. Um, we're starting out, I think. Well, we're starting out with Kensington, um, and I think we we arrived there through a number of avenues. The first was we were reading uh, Souls of Black Folk a couple months ago. And through it, we came to, we came to see how Du Bois laid out like the framework for this idea of like a liberatory sociology, like, like, like a method for a science for the people, for, for liberation, um, you know? And then there was also this, this thing, you know, like about how you took like Torba and, and Shambarto to Kensington um, and then just exploring, you know, how can we, how can we, you know, distill like Du Bois's principles and framework, and how do we creatively apply that, you know, how do we apply like a liberatory sociology to our time in our city? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we're seeing, 
we're seeing Kensington, you know, I think we're trying to understand, you know, the people, like its history, everything, unlike how it's been looked at um, for, for decades, you know, because I think Kensington is often seen as like an aberration, as, you know, something, you know, sensational and something, you know, it receives a lot of hyper visibility in the media, but actually a very shallow understanding of what's actually produced Kensington. And, you know, like, why it is the way it is and what, and what, you know, does it, what future does it spell for, their, for all of us? And yeah, you know, Kensington, we really have come to see it as just the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's not an aberration, but actually it's, so much of it is actually part of the essence of American society and by extension, the American crisis. So, yeah, and, and also at the same time, um, as we, you know, prepare um, and, and we do research for that. Yeah. Um, Tamar, would you like to in, uh, introduce us to your guest? <laughs> Thank you. 
ahead. I'm sorry to have interrupted you. Um, wait, where was I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I think like in tandem with like um, researching and, you know, looking into the historical, political, like all these forces, you know, not just behind Kensington, but behind, you know, like the larger like phenomena, like deindustrialization, you know, like like population changes, you have like the great migration and then you have white flight. Um, all of these, I mean, so alongside that, we're reading um, Other Sheep I Have by Father Paul Washington. Um, and one of the main reasons is because um, he, in this book, actually provides a pretty thorough like sociological sketch of Philadelphia uh, in the revolutionary period of the 1960s and 70s. And um, he, I think as a leader of the people and as someone who was so like, I, I guess as, as someone who was so, you know, like along with the people, I think we, we get a lot of like intimate insights into like the forces that are, you know, being exerted and acting in Philadelphia and like what the people are thinking. And I think, um, they give a lot of insight today for like how a people's movement can be mounted um, and like what are the possibilities in Philadelphia today, especially actually those of peace. Um, he, he talks a lot in, in here about how, you know, while other cities in the 1960s to 70s were erupting in violent riots, you know, Philadelphia was a city that largely, you know, managed to keep peace through a lot of these things through like the principled leadership of a lot of people, especially from the black community. So, you know, just seeing like, how has that continued if at all today? And what are the possibilities, you know, for really like our question is mounting like a, like a democratic struggle of the people, you know, what, like, what could that look like today? Um, so yeah, those are like some of the foundations of, you know, why, like why we're choosing to embark on this sociological project, which is still kind of in its infancy, but you know, there's, there's a lot, yeah, and. I mean, if you want. Well, something that you talking about the origins of Lotus led me to think about was kind of connected to what our, you know, our discussion with Katie earlier about, um, you know, ideas and contradictions, but um, I would say that I, I never, I think like necessity kind of led us to the struggle for ideas because like Anna mentioned, Lotus originally began as, um, I guess a labor organizing group. And so we were very focused on uh, actionable goals and specifically a campaign to raise the wages of the black dining workers on campus. But there was so much disunity among the students and disunity among uh, the dining workers, you know, on the level of principle and ideas um, that really made this work, I think, like near impossible. And um, and it was extremely, I think, formative to our consciousness to see that, um, you know, so intimately and so viscerally. Um, I think like at its height, we were meeting every day for hours and having actions you know, two to three times a week for a campaign and to see it all kind of collapse um, because there were no sustaining ideas 
or no sustaining leadership guiding uh, guiding the movement. Um, yeah, it it was the first time that I realized I came to realize, um, you know, the imperative of political education first, um, and now is not the time for struggle without ideas. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's ever the time, but yeah. And then, um, and then I think with the sociological project, we sociological study, we we didn't begin like with the idea of conducting a study, but I think like Anna described, our study of souls and the moving into other sheep I had, or get, and then also in tandem, feeling prepared to practice really led us, um, led us organically, you know, to, to wanting to really um, devote ourselves to a deeper study of the city and the forces which have made it. And um, I think from that to also draw a framework that will help us understand a lot of different uh, cities in this country and then a lot of different regions eventually and um and something else that i will note is we, we were also drawn toward this naturally because not everyone in lotus who attends lotus meetings is in philadelphia anymore so for example like andrew you know he still comes to meetings sometimes he moved back to indianapolis and then we'll probably move to chicago but we're still talking about what it means for him to be in those types of cities in the midwest and um so so i i think the last thing i would say is um we initially thought our study would be a series of five consecutive visits we had come up with a number of institutions like you know we would we would love to go to lincoln again to kind of counterpose the hbcus with uh, the philadelphia public school system like we had a series of institutions mapped out um but we have so we thought initially it would take five weeks but now we spent like six weeks already just on Kensington and we realized this is going to be a much much deeper longer process because my god like there's so much wrapped up even in just Kensington and we want to be very slow and deliberate about it okay any questions <laughs> I, I just want to say uh the granularity <laughs> of what you're doing uh, is, is just huge to me. And um, at this stage in your, your lives and your careers, you know, you're dedicating yourself to um, that intimate one-on-one -on -one connection with the issues and so forth. And I mean, I'm always going back to when I was your age, and, and, and how we looked at the world and the struggle and so on and so forth. And I would have to say the assemblies that we have here and the real diversity uh, of ethnicities and then the focus on a common struggle, that wasn't even conceptualized when I was an undergraduate when I was 20 something. So uh, when I, 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 I hear you and I see the youth in your faces, the light, <laughs> and the Please. intelligence. That's just one we got some more to go. Really, man, you, I don't know if you feel uh, uh, elated now. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of, can I go on to the band down reading? Please. I just wanted to just express my love for you. Yeah, but you uh, know, already. Already. When you hear the rest of this, you are, I might have to uh, perform mouth to mouth with you. But you know I get carried You know I get carried away. You know I get carried away. Okay. 
Okay, we're going on to the band dung. I think Jerry is going to start with this. Yeah, Kathy and I are working with speak about it. Okay. Yeah, I'll just I'll give uh I'll give a, a history of our of our reading group. Um, I think I guess I should say that many of us came out of um, the same organization from Cornell, um, which is called Asian Pacific Americans for Action, and like briefly, like we had done like this whole ethnic studies campaign for Asian American studies and other ethnic studies programs at Cornell. And then we were very burnt out. And I think we were kind of like searching for questions of like, yeah, like what is like a relevant education? Like what does that actually mean? Because we've been saying these things but we don't actually know what it means. And also I think, um, yeah, what is like the role of the Asian American? I think we were asking that as well, which led us to, to Grace Lee Boggs um, and then that was also what led to us first meeting you, Doc, and encountering the free school because you came to speak at Cornell um, for our Grace Lee Boggs month in 2017, I think. And at the time we had, like, when you spoke, like, I think all of us walked out of it. We were just dazed. Like, oh. <laughs> I, was, I was also very depressed. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll never forget, forget that. Jerry and I, we have a, a uh, a history together that's unique to us. Yeah, but go ahead. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, because you were talking about like Pan Africa, Pan Asia. We were like, what? Yeah, you like the petro. The petro you want. Yeah, the petro. Yeah, but I think. Um, that video is on YouTube if any of you want to watch oh, yeah, it. Is on YouTube. I watched it before. Yeah, I'm doing like the. Yeah. How would you <laughs> search? We'll send it to you. Yeah, we'll send it to you. Okay, I would like to. Um, yeah, I think as we started reading more, moving on from like Gracie Boggs, <laughs> we like moved specifically into the black radical tradition, which is something I guess we didn't really understand at the time. But we were really moving into it by studying Du Bois, um, King, Baldwin, um, and Huey P. Newton's revolutionary suicide. And I think we came out of it with, I think, two sort of convictions, at least I can speak for myself, which was that one, we believe that the black worker was the most revolutionary force in American history. And two, I think um, on a more, I guess, personal level almost, um, we knew that we needed to receive training um, in something like the free school or in this free school specifically, which brought um, many of us to Philadelphia to the free school because we knew that we needed like an actual education that we had not received at a place like Cornell. Um, and I think also like studying the black radical tradition was important for us because it like, I feel like for, especially for students, and I feel like we share this with SLAP or with, sorry, with Lotus, like, I feel like when you're seeing a lot of the questions that you're asking are very like existential, you know, you're like, what am I doing here? Like, why am I so depressed? All that stuff. And so I think studying the black radical tradition gave a lot of us just a moral foundation in a way that we were not able to find anywhere else. Um, and so after some of us graduated, um, we continued to study like the Black Freedom Struggle. We read Souls of Black Folk, Black Reconstruction, um, and so forth. And yeah, I think reading those, because that was, I think, 
partially during the summer of like 2020 and like George Floyd and the pandemic. And so um, one, it grounded us a lot in like what was what is like the essence of like the strivings and the philosophy um, and like the history of the black worker. Um, but it was also getting us to also think about like how do we how do we go beyond just like thinking about like ourselves, but actually understanding like what is happening in our society? Like why, how did we get to this point? Um, what is the future? Um, and yeah, I think as many of us came or chose to come to Philadelphia um, to receive that training that I mentioned, um, because many of us were also, are also children of Asian immigrants. We were um, asking the question of, yeah, again, how do Asians fit into what we understood as America's revolutionary struggle um, and how can we inject like the inheritance that we have of the anti-colonial struggle in like from Asia into America in a positive way um, to provide some kind of energy or like spirit for positive change, um, for revolutionary change. And so um, once we, once many of us ended up in Philly, um, we had the idea, like in mind with that, we, that we wanted to study the Bandung Conference um, because it had brought Asia and Africa together. And we were already thinking about this question, but we realized that in order to study Bandung, we first needed to understand the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union had influence and made this huge impact on so many of the countries which came together at Bandung. Um, and yeah, so, because of that, we read um, Du Bois's manuscript, Russia and America. Um, and I think, yeah, some, some few things that came out of that were, I think, similar to what Anna was describing of like, what does a revolutionary social science look like? We learned a lot. I think consciously we're trying to learn a lot from Du Bois's methodology of studying the Soviet Union from the perspective of the Black worker, um, of Black America, and also how Du Bois even describes like, like Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, and those as representing like kind of methods of a revolutionary as well. And I think that was really helpful for us because we were also trying to make sense of, okay, how do you make sense of the 2020 election? How do you make sense of the different, you know, like the BLM, defund the police movement? Um, to what extent can we see a lot of like these sort of woke left things um, kind of drawing from like Trotskyism specifically, stuff like that. Um, and I think also from Russia and America, we really, I think, understood, well, first of all, like none of us had ever really studied the Soviet Union before. So it was kind of like walking into something that we had no idea, like what to expect. But I think it really honed in, I think, like what it really means to build a society for the worker or for the child of the worker. Um, and also, I think it also affirmed or clarified like why Asia is also important because Du Bois makes this um, this proposal or this idea of this kind of new communism emerging from Asia, which would synthesize like the sort of moral religious traditions of Asia with this kind of revolutionary social science that first emerged in the Soviet Union um, for the cause of like human uplift. Um, and I think one of the final main lessons that we got from Russia and America was, um, yeah, first kind of really thinking about peace as this universal principle of, or as like the, the singular principle of unity because like Du Bois ends Russian America with this basically talking about like what should bring together the Russian and the American people who have very different histories, but also 
um, you know, like we should share this common aspiration for ending poverty and ending war. Um, and yeah, I think that was also our exposure to like the world peace movement, stuff like that. And so from there, we um, went into studying Bandung um, and trying to answer the question of like, how do Asia and Africa fit together? Like, and also what would that mean for like Asian Americans in America to like actually understand like the black freedom struggle um, and the black and the black community and like everything that has shaped that um, to build a principle of unity. Um, and yeah, I think some some sort of ideas or lessons that we got from studying Bandung, and there were a lot. And I think there's a reason why we've chosen to call ourselves a Bandung reading group, um, which I'll get into. But yeah, I think first off, like just gaining an appreciation for the fact that all of these countries, like representing like the majority of mankind, came together with like a shared vision or a shared ideal of um, freedom from colonialism and world peace. I think those were like the two, two main things. And um, it also exposed us to this shared like spiritual heritage that we have um, from Asia of like moral uprightness um, and like, this kind of humanism that I think many of us like don't really get access to in growing up in America, um, specifically coming from you know religions like Islam and Buddhism in particular um, and Hinduism. And um, I think we learned what it means that there is a tradition of the oppressed peoples um, and that this tradition can be a guiding light for reviving like a people's culture um, of resistance in America as well. Um, I think we also like realize that Bandung really did represent a kind of almost epistemological break in history, like a kind of leap forward for humanity because it like it put forward like this new standard of morality of how nations should govern and how they should interact with each other, like how humanity should cooperate. Um, and also, I think we understood as setting in motion a period of world revolution um, that remains unfinished. And yeah, I think that was that was also one of the big things too, was because King talked about like the world revolution, America must be on the right side of that world revolution. And we really, really believed from our study of Van Dung that um, people like King and the broader civil rights movement really had a home in Bandung and that they were drawing inspiration philosophically, politically, strategically um, from the Bandung spirit. And um, especially, you know, this emphasis on peace, but we also, um, yeah, and also, I mean, because Robeson, Du Bois also sent their messages to Bandung um, as well and through their support behind it. And um, I think we also learned I think we're, we're trying to learn from Bandung as well, like what is a practice of building principled unity? Um, because that was something that you saw very concretely in a way from Bandung was like all of these nations, like many of which, some of which were communists, others of which were not communists, but like how did they actually like come together on like a shared set of principles um, in order to actually achieve like real human progress because they represented like the masses of humanity who had been so dispossessed um, 
and plagued by colonialism, by war, by the West for so long. Um, and yeah, I think um, there's one quote from Sukarno, who was the president of Indonesia, um, which is where the conference took place. But um, yeah, in particular, Sukarno, I think he really, like we saw so many parallels and similarities between Sukarno and King specifically. Like this idea that we have, like in the current modern age, we have achieved technological progress, but not human and moral progress. Um, this emphasis on world peace, um, and just like in general, how he frames ideas and thoughts. But um, just quickly, I wanted to read a quote from his opening speech at Bandung, where he says, the peoples of Asia and Africa wield little physical power, and even in their economic strength is dispersed and slight. We cannot indulge in power politics. Diplomacy for us is not a matter of the big stick. Our, statement by, our statesmen, by and large, are not backed up with serried ranks of jet bombers. What can we do? We can do much. We can inject the voice of reason into world affairs. We can mobilize all the spiritual, all the moral, all the political strength of Asia and Africa on, a, on the side of peace. Yes, we, we the peoples of Asia and Africa, 1.4 billion strong, far more than half the human population of well, 20 more, trillion, I think. Yeah, trillion. More than half the human population of the world, we can mobilize what I have called the moral violence. I, I think another way maybe putting it is like what King called like the moral force, the moral violence of nations in favor of peace. Um, we can demonstrate to the minority of the world which lives on the on the other on the other continents that we, the majority, are for peace, not for war. And that whatever strength we have will always be thrown on to the side of peace. Let us not be bitter about the past but let us keep our eyes firmly on the future. Let us remember that no blessing of God is so sweet as life and liberty. Let us remember that the stature of all mankind is diminished so long as nations or parts of nations are still unfree. Let us remember that the highest purpose of man is the liberation of man from his bonds of fear, his bonds of human degradation, his bonds of poverty, the liberation of man from the physical, spiritual, and intellectual bonds which have for so long stunted the development of humanity's majority. And let us remember sisters and brothers that for the sake of all that, we Asians and Africans must be united. Um, not the end of the quote. But yeah, I think a big reason why we resonated so strongly with Bandung particularly was because it showed us like very vividly, um, like the kinds of moral and ideological lessons that can be gained from embracing the anti-colonial struggle. Um, also from the perspective of the Black radical tradition. Um, and also I think we were very inspired by this message of like what is possible when there is this diversity in civilizations and cultures, but a unity in desire, a unity in strivings. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that resonated with a lot of us because we, like a lot of us are Asian, but we also come from many different civilizations, countries, backgrounds. Um, and then briefly, um, for Mandung, we, after Mandung, we also studied the non-aligned movement um, in order to understand, I think, more fully, like, the true nature of the crisis of war and peace and what that means for humankind, um, and also how the nations from Mandung um, were trying to carry out this world revolution that they had initiated with the Mandung Conference um, in, you know, alignment with the world communist movement and the world peace movement. 
Um, and then we also studied, um, we were trying to understand like what does a revolutionary practice look like? So we started um, studying Martin Luther King and specifically the Montgomery bus boycott movement, as well as Fidel. Um, that's the first time that we read Fidel and we learned a lot from his practice as well, and like how he sought to unite the Cuban people, but also to, um, to advance consciousness of the Cuban people as well. Um, and then from there, we had, so we have started studying um, the Korean War um, and also the Vietnam War with Viet Lao Khmer uh, to understand, I think, like really the essence of what American imperialism means um, and what this history of, or like what this like legacy and this agenda of war has done both to Korea and Asia, but also to American society as well, to the American people. Um, and I think like to end, at least my part, um, I think our vision is sort of revolving at this time around certain questions of um, like what is the role, like what is the role and what can be the role of like a whole generation of Asians, um, of like Asian Americans that like are in this country um, and what are the contributions of Asia towards America's struggle for freedom um, and yeah, continuing to ask like, what does a revolutionary practice look like, especially in this time of crisis of war um, that you talked about at the beginning? Um, and yeah, finally, how like how will we move like other young people and particularly like, Asians and immigrants, children of immigrants, to like actually make the choice to assume responsibility for their lives, but also for the society and for um, the future of the world. Could I ask, oh, that was wonderful, but could I just ask, because at two o'clock, you know, we have the uh, concert. So Kathy, would you mind if we went to the Viet Lao Khmer and then, uh, to uh, Du Bois, Baldwin, and, but let's do Khmer. Uh, starts at three, not at two? No. No, two. The doors open at two, we start at three. And it's food, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Khmer. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Khmer. This is a good. This is an old friend. This is Marcy Francis. She's a drummer, electric bass player, and shaker ray player. You'll see her perform today, along with Jan Jeffrey, the master drummer. Yeah, I, I guess I'll start. Uh, Viet Lao Khmer is uh, fairly young. I think we started about last year. In, uh, and it was out of conversations with Brandon, myself, and other, other members of free school uh, talking about 
young people, young Asian Americans, um, Vietnamese and like Southeast Asian Americans in Philadelphia and their growth and progression. Um, and I guess I, I can start by reading our mission statement that we have and then um, I can pass it along. Uh, Viet Lao Khmer is a collective dedicated to understanding the common heritage shared between the Vietnamese, Laotian and Cambodian people and the liberation movements of Africa and Asia. We anchor ourselves in the anti-colonial movement of Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, as well as the black freedom movement as a lens through which we relate to humanity. With this foundation, we struggle for ideas that lead to a positive transformation in human beings. Um, and I, I don't, I guess I don't have too much more to add because we've all sort of been addressing the same issues um, about young people and how confused they are. And that's out of like a concerted effort by the ruling class, as well as um, the, the confusion that comes with being raised up in the West as part of like a in-between immigrant generation um, that is separate from like the history of the anti-colonial struggle, the history of, of revolution. Um, and the shelter that comes with being raised so close to whiteness uh, and, you know, assimilation. Um, and yeah, so we're, tr we're kind of re trying to reach the younger generation through social media. And we exist um, on like Facebook and Instagram and we, we create posts that uh, study uh, like the revolutionary leaders, Ho Chi Minh, but also Martin Luther King, um, Sukarno, uh, the, the leaders of Laos and Cambodia as well, because those are lesser known, um, but they all provide the same lessons for young people um, that uh, to stand up, to really take uh, pride of your destiny and um, you know to understand how history lives through us, uh, as, as Brandon says a lot. <laughs> so. I don't know. I'll pass it off to Brandon. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, what An said is important, especially about what the possibilities are if we embrace a revolutionary tradition rather than the reactionary tradition that was imposed on us. And when An and I first got together, I think it was in the beginning of 2021 in February, we had talked about the situation with the Vietnamese, uh, Laotian, and, and Cambodian communities in Philadelphia. And it is it is a very, well, we, we talked about our families, we talked about our lives, and in general about these communities. Um, but the situation is complex, and it is such that, like, for example, I mean, you could be you could be like an overachieving student at Temple University or another university in Philly, but then you could have an uncle or uncles and aunts that are out at KNA. Mm. Or you could have like someone in your family that's locked up or another person in your family that's begging for money on Washington Avenue. And although it is a complex situation, I think where all of these uh, dynamics in our community meet or share in common is that we we don't have an ideal worthy of committing our lives to. We don't have we don't know what we're fighting for, so we really don't know what we're living for. And that speaks to a lot of the crisis that's happening in our community, which is also not separate from what is happening in America with other parts of this society. 
but I think a lot of what we're doing, although we haven't specifically talked about it, is we're cultivating a new leadership or we're trying to cultivate a new leadership because we see how much propaganda has been imposed on us. We see how much we've been lied to. And just, just an, an example, um, you know, I, I'm, I started this job where I'm pretty much working in a predominantly white space and they have a certain way of talking to you. And, you know, like I'm at my job trying to get to know people and, you know, they're trying to get to know me too. I don't think they have any negative intention, but, you know, of course the question comes up of what is your nationality? Where are you from? And then I tell them, uh, you know, my parents uh, came here in the, you know, early 80s, late 80s after the war and they were in refugee camps and yada, yada, yada. And then there's a certain way that they talk to you that I'll just, I'll just illustrate it. Like, oh, it's so brave. It's, it's so brave how your family came here and they were willing to, yeah, they, 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 they were willing to go through all of that to fight for a better life, to find a better life for their families. And, oh my God, like, it's so sad what they're doing to Asians with all the attacks nowadays and five years ago maybe i would have been okay with that but now i'm just like you talking to a grown-ass man <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. and but i think that with me and on like we have this privilege of being in the free school we have this privilege of being in contact with the that with learning from the W.E.B. Du Bois, James Baldwin Collective, the Lotus Collective, the Bandung, and the Free School. And with this, with, with what we're blessed with, we also have a great responsibility. And we, to put it in simple terms, like we're figuring the game out. Mm. We're figuring it out and we, you know, we are trying to cultivate a, a new generation of youth, you know, who, who can stand up for themselves. Because I often think about the questions of like, no matter, it doesn't matter who it is in our community. You could be a straight A student, overachiever, or like you could be in and out of the juvenile system growing up. But at the end of the day, like there needs to be someone who's standing up for them. There needs to be someone who's protecting them and showing them an alternative yeah, yeah. and you know it's kind of pathetic how for the generation that's 25 and under like those people for example that i was talking about they know our history better than us but they know exactly what they're saying because they they know what side we're on even though we might know all of that and I don't, I don't want young people to put up with that or feel like that's a part of getting by, getting into fit in or going along to get along. Right. And, you know, we can't just sit back and accept everything as if it's all good. And, you know, the immigrant and refugee movement is pretty much 
I think we've established in a movement that's intended to uh, turn Asians into Uncle Toms. Right, and right, right, it's true. So, yeah. we're, I think with Viet Lao Khmer, we are here to say like, you don't, you don't have to be what they want you to be. Right. Like you don't have to be a nerd. You don't have to be a thug. You don't have to be a party animal. Put the drugs down. Put the alcohol down. You don't have to listen to whatever your professors said. You don't have to listen to everything that they say. Refuse to play their game. And you know, look at our history. Look at what our people have contrib contributed to the world, and learn about. Figure out what you can contribute and be a part of something greater than yourself. Right, that's right. Wow. You know, I was just thinking, cause like I wish other people in our group were here. Like we have Emil, Blaze, Ali, Sammy Chomsky, and on. Um, and it's like, like the first thing I'm, I know this whole thing has been like a struggle this whole time uh -huh. um, because like we were remembering that it was before we tried to get the book club started at the temple, right? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so out of 2019, Sarah came to me and was like, yeah, we should start like an artist, like reading collective. Because I was like, okay, well, how we, how we like organize is based off of political education. And that was, I was like, okay, cool. Like now I feel like I know what we can do. Uh, to me, it opened up a lot of possibilities in terms of political practice. Um, but we started out, we met at um, my house, I think. We yeah. met at, we met down in Germantown. Um, and we had uh, a couple, we had, like Serpian said, different iterations. So we had, uh, a young black man singer who we had, we were in an all city choir with. Um, and another uh, young black, Puerto Rican? She's Puerto Rican. She's Puerto Rican. <laughs> uh, like Afrocentric kind of uh, girl. They both met and uh, at the house, but I think Savion or yeah, Sa you know, you know, another member, another member during that time, he came at different meetings. Those two left together and never came back. Yeah. Um, and that at that time, I, I don't remember what we read that day. I think we read, yeah, because we- it's like, it, must, it could have been Souls, you know what I mean? No. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't think it was Souls, bro, because we didn't really do, we didn't really do that, like, until maybe like later. Because we talked about, we talked about the plan. I, think, I thought it was more discussion okay. that day. And then we got into the reading. Ask or aspect. Honestly, I don't even know how much we read that day because it was like the girl wanted to read something out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's and that's what you're up against in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? It's kind is a uh, counter-revolutionary idea. She's Afrocentrist. We should read. Right. Yeah. She she said she the was like time. yeah she was like this is so traumatic and oh yeah yeah like yeah you know what I mean <laughs> okay well, get, well anyway the thing the thing is is that 
that I realized. I feel the trauma of that. <laughs> yeah, 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 on my yeah. side. Let's yeah. move it on to, to the consolidation, if you don't mind. But go ahead. Yeah, we didn't really get, 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 get to that consolidation. Until January. That was in that, and that was in September. That was six months so later. More trauma. But other people, wait, Jacob. So, like, it's interesting because, okay, so overarching thing that was going on is like, how can we politically? It, it became less about just the artists because it's like these these people out here, they want to do it, you know, art, but they don't want to struggle. So it it became more about um, how can we politically educate black people, um, and then we were trying to do that. A little bit too not in you know what i mean but just bringing the people that we know closer yeah. uh -huh. um to us and then i tried to then we then me being at temple we tried to make the group a student kind of like organization uh -huh. but then we made it just like a book club where we met at temple because while like our friends who were predominantly black um we were coming and I'm forgetting what we were, if we were reading. Okay, we were reading. Uh, oh, yeah, we were. That was, we read three, four meetings, like okay. trying to read that book. Yeah, that's really true. And we, you know, to be honest with you, those meetings, it didn't amass to nothing mm -hmm. because we were able to talk about like that story in a really productive way. I just yeah. remember that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, mm -hmm. we had started with Baldwin over at Temple and then. We had other people come in and our group kind of like split off a bit. We were going through stuff and that that was like difficult and we're still trying to stick with Baldwin. And then, and then, um, and yeah, but- like, But we didn't really get, we, we stuck to Baldwin. Yeah, but that you, was January. You have to see how you got, we're on, because that's how that- That was in January. Okay, all right. Because that's the consolidation thing that happened. Um, and, and, but the thing about it that I was just, the lesson there was like, you know, we just kept going with our objective, which yeah. is to try and politically educate the people that we know, which in this case is going to be like white working class people. It's going to be black working class people. Um, and in a, yeah, and in a way, like that's kind of what our group has amassed, has become in a, in a sense. Um, but just kind of like take it back, you know, I, it seemed like I was, I kept trying to push it forward and then Jacob followed up with the backhand and then brought the people to the, you know, to the group itself. In which in January we started reading what? Uh, I think I might have been, we started at the beginning of Baldwin. Okay. So there was everyone's protest novel, uh, downtown, uptown. Um, we, we read, like, we did read, we did read um, uh, his, his, the, uh, nobody knows, uh, the first one. The fact is, is that we had like a year of Baldwin. Yeah. You know, we had like a year of straight Baldwin. Yeah. And then um, through coronavirus, and we were still struggling with the people um, in our group itself to just be a group. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and right, right. then we started reading like through yeah. Boys and King for about like a year. That was, yeah, that was in um, at, on, like August. Mm -hmm. So, um, there was coronavirus. That so there's there's an important note that you know that was one of the like a huge challenge we faced because um, we were a student we were a student group and we were bringing students to the tape to the table and we had three 
Um, and that that we had and we had no we had more we had you know, it was you know and, yeah, yeah, and then you know what yeah, I mean yeah, yeah, right, you know, we had we had some folk and then a meal came and you know what I mean so we had we had people and then boom coronavirus we're meeting online you know what I mean and so we don't have um, the the ability to kind of reach the students and think nope, nobody was reaching really anybody but we kept reading we kept on the objective yeah um, and during that time we read like that was you know. And we did reflections. Don't we forget the reflections? Yeah. So we was really, we was really, we was yeah, really pushing. So like basically what you're saying there is like our Facebook page was active during this time. Yeah. Where we were trying to do like writings and stuff like that. And we did but, different events as well during coronavirus. Yeah, we did like one. Uh, Hansberry and then later. Oh yeah, the learning Hansberry. Yeah, and then at the for the that was much later. Uh huh. Okay. Um. And then. One thing I remember. Mm-hmm. There was a time where you all. I know I was in a discussion with you all, were um, dealing with the issue of how to make a serious presence at Temple University. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. And, yeah. and so we had talked about the um, uh, blocks and collection as a meeting place and others, but it was, I know you all wanted to make a serious attempt to make an ideological political presence at Temple University. And the first thing that has to happen with that is that we're consolidated yeah. too. Yeah. And um but that's not off the table. We still I mean we of still course have, okay so you all have literally uh kind of moved away from temple Okay, let me pause. It's like this, right? So after we did the uh, the Du Bois stuff, right? We, Africa. What? Are you talking about Africa? I'm kind of like I'm blanking on that right now. Uh, you went the chronology because we it was like the coronavirus. Fire next time, and then we went to. And then we went to, but then we went to um. Uh, remember nothing personal. That after that, that was, and that was during August. Then we went to Du Bois. Okay, then and, but we were still meeting at Temple University. Oh, you were meeting at Absolutely. Temple on Sundays. On yeah, on Sundays. On Sundays. Where okay. at Temple? We were meeting right at um a Walk. This doesn't matter. Right, we were we, we were after, after, yeah. after Du after Du Bois, how do we get to Winston? That's what yeah. I want. Yeah, that's, what I'm was, to that's get when we home. get to the Winston. But that's like a huge blank. I, I, if I could, if I could, because Serafina texts me at like seven fifty eight. Well, we know and, that, but like before that, it was they like, don't know that. Do they know that? Y'all know that story? All right, whatever. Well, just get to sum, sum it up and how did you get to the Winston thing? I know, I'm sorry. Everybody it's tough because there's like a lot. I didn't even do that. No, no, I don't think you, I don't think it's a problem. Anybody, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, everybody then. What I'm saying is, so the Henry Winston, we approached Henry, uh, Serafina found Henry Winston. How she found it, when she did it, is almost like in the freaking air. Like it's, it's, it's. Yeah, we, read we were reading the world in Africa. Yeah, we read. No, no, no. I'm not saying that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying what, like, in that moment in February. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and um, she texts me. Well, we, we actually y'all have heard this story, but I'll tell it again. Um, and it's the Moynihan, the Moynihan doctrine, and how, and I'll say in a basic sense, how Henry Winston connected us to the ideas that people carry today. The counter-revolution ideas that people, you know, you just hear when you talk about politics, okay, as a family. And that was important to us because, you know, it informed, okay, how we're going, how we can break through to people. Um, and that was what excited us about Henry Winston. And we started that right after, uh, right during a Black Reconstruction. We were reading Black Reconstruction at the time. So if you remember, um, and that was right after um, 
the world in Africa. I mean, we, you know, we were really slug, slugging away, but we're, we're well, no, I'm just trying to figure out what you're leading to that. From February to now, yeah. Because we um, started with Classrooms and Black Liberation. And um, it was with the Moynihan thesis that, um, but also is the formulation about race having a class basis that I found to be important to read. And I don't know to read in our group in particular or to just read in general. But it is it was the fact that we were like chugging through reconstruction. Um but that had to come to like a no it wasn't chug it's just like we kept reading it but it seemed like it wasn't giving the impetus as to why we're reading. And Winston as a figure and as a theoretician allowed us to use what it is that we were right. reading for political, for political uh, practice, like we're talking, like talking. And I think eventually that's also what consolidated our group thus far. Yeah. And I think that we have like struggled to come to this point, but we're like at a place where we can actually um, do other things um, and start thinking about other ways of uh, uh reaching out yeah. and so being like we're reflecting on the year of Du Bois and how the year of Du Bois was reading in different locations so we're thinking about using that format and we're thinking about what to read and um you know that kind of thing but still at the moment we're reflecting on the Winston Symposium uh trying to understand and assess what we learned from it and also what does it mean for us as a group yeah um, and what does it mean? What does the symposium mean for us as a group? And what I'm saying is, some is what Brandon's saying. You know, developing leadership. Uh, uh, so, yeah, it's like it's kind of shaky beginnings, but we're still trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, formative, forming things is very difficult. It's not easy. Right? And I hear, you know, and I, I, I think I was a bit of a part of it for a while, you know. Yeah, every, it's, but it's, I, I, I mean, I just wanted to tell you all that it's not a, you know, I understand. But it's also the ideological landscape. Yeah. Because absolutely. black people is really difficult. Speak, say that again. It's difficult to um, seem to connect and develop uh, a strong practice. Of ideologically uh, training in a way. Black, black, black youth. youth. And I want, I want to explain that to you. I, I had a discussion, but we won't do it. I mean, we'll come back to it. I understand what you, and that's what in part is uh, the difficulty of you all's beginning. And uh, I think the Winston Initiative was defining and grounding for you all. And we'll talk about, 
Are we going to do? Uh, am I going to Bob come? Jay, yeah. We'll come back to it. Right. Uh, let me see. Uh, we, we have OPT, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Nansa and Raju. We can also go next week if it's getting. But we're Nansa and Raju's reading group also. Yeah, what Nansa. Let me um, hold it. And plus, wait, wait, we have. And who's going to do MIT? Oh, you want to do MIT yeah. first? Yeah. And yeah, I also asked Susanna Jeffrey to send something in the comment section too. Say that again. I also asked them to send something in the live stream if they sent something, but I can also talk briefly. It's not the yeah, if you could talk briefly. And yeah. um, and then. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> I mean, their reading group is, I think, pretty recent. Um, I think it came out of, I mean, it started with Susanna first, like coming to Lotus into preschool. Like she did that like over the course of a year. and. But I think it was when you know she met Jeffrey, and then she was caught in like a lot of the prevailing forces at MIT. Because I think the politics at MIT are just incredibly debased. I mean, there's the identity. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's there's hardly any sort of activism going on. The biggest one right now is the Coalition Against Apartheid, which is for you know the Palestinian movement. So that itself isn't really that big either. And then the like the whole administration is really focused on identity politics. And so I think. Like the reading group really emerged from that sphere, from like that environment. And um, right now they're reading Living for Change and really trying to like understand the group right now through Living for Change. And I think trying to consolidate and understand, you know, like the early stages of a reading group, like how to build these relationships, how to build this trust, and also how to know how to develop ideas together. Um, since I know it was really formative for them to go through the Dow into the Winston conflict, to actually see preschool understand how the other readers would and also see like their own responsibility. I think that made a lot of their real though. Not just you know, reading up in MIT the ideas, but like knowing that these ideas had a root, like and it's here. So I think there's definitely a lot of directions they can take now. I mean events they were thinking about, you know, other readings. But I think it's good right now. They have a good like core group of people they've been reading regularly and they've been working through living for change. So yeah. They've been working through Living for Change. Yeah. Now, what is Living for Change again? The uh, autobiography by Grace Boggs. Oh, Grace Lee Boggs. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, um, we can continue this uh, MIT and do OPP and Bangalore next <laughs> week. English. Bangladesh. I guess it's time for laughs. Oh, yeah, the upstate New York. Oh, yeah, the upstate New York group. So we'll get to all of these next week. But um, just a few observations. If you don't mind, unless Grady wants to go, I know you you're in love. And... Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I already shared my love. I shared my love. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, it, it's a loving situation. It is. It's it a really very is. loving situation. Yeah. Really. And this is this is unbelievable to see how this is emerging. In fact, I'm so glad to hear about it because I I mean I know I mean it's very, you know I didn't know very much uh, about all of this that is going on. And all of this is very, very important futuristically. Yeah. And um, that's why I was saying about uh, Du Bois Baldwin that, you know, um, 
your form your, your formative uh, period and struggles is very instructive, you know, because even though Lotus did not talk about the difficulties that Earl, that period of breaking with the slap and, and that internal student struggle and all those ideological issues. I mean, that was, I mean, it was um, more, I think even more difficult in some ways than what you all have gone. Yours is a different kind of thing. Yeah, but no, no, when I say, you know, trying to organize students at an elite university at a time like when, you know, quote, Black Lives Matter and, you know, all of that was very, very difficult. Because as you said, you often said, hold, what, well, hold up, hold up, Jay. The, the politics was so unprincipled and, and it was a principle of being unprincipled, you know? And um, also, um, you know, with like uh, Du Bois um, Baldwin, I regret that I have not been able to help more with that one. And it is the question of where black youth. And I had a, um, I was to, um, Sabrina Sample. I was talking with her uh, Friday last night. And I was talking about this issue of where are black youth. Now, believe me, if you think the ideological problems among students, as you know, Lotus experience are pro was something, so much has been dumped mm -hmm. through the universities, through uh, pop culture on black youth that they think. And this is what Sabrina said to me, this idea that the only quote safe space is an all black space where we can quote, talk to each other. Now, let me tell you something. I don't know of any generation of young black folk that don't go through that. I went through it. I went through it. But it is, it is a stage of early or or I can even say infantile political activism. It usually occurs on college campuses. You know what I'm saying? Uh, usually there is a party aspect to it. You know what I'm saying? Part of the thing with Du Bois Baldwin, y'all work. You're not really full-time students and people, it, I could be wrong, no, but you all have jobs. And the other thing is ideologically and culturally, you all are quite a bit more advanced, you know? And so the question becomes, and I, I, let's try to think this through, how to break through. Now I'm gonna to talk to Sabrina. Sabrina was a student at Temple. You know, she graduated from there. Um, she's now um, actually a mother, you know, of twins and a, 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 another little child. But I, I, I would like, this is going to be, if it is possible, if you all can do it, it would constitute a qualitative stage in the development of the preschool. And it is the most, but but everything is 
testing a lot of sensibilities, a lot of recognition of what the issues are, what the problems are. It can be done, but it is a decisive group who has to be moved decisively. And I had discussion with a lot of people recently. I talked to, as I said, I talked to Cynthia about this, Cynthia Bickley, you know, and the black community feels, and I talked to my daughter about this, really under great pressure and duress, the likes of which we have never experienced. Um, as, as you all mentioned, a failed leadership, no leadership, literally kleptocratic leadership, um, and uh, all of that. And this is why we're going to talk about, I think the Winston initiative, and that did come out of Du Bois Baldwin, that initiative was very critical to redefining and grounding our work towards the current Black liberation struggle in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, we're gonna go over what, um, tell us what time. Well, now it's time, but it seems like a lot of people are coming in. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Hi, too. Well, it's just the opening door to the community recreation. <coughs> it's in the sanctuary. Okay. Oh, wow. hmm. um, okay. I have something that was delivered. 